Digging Up the Dirt with special guest Jared Murphy. Episode 5, Season 2 of the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Welcome to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Coming to you from the glacial dumping grounds known as the Michigan Basin, I'm Michelle. And I am Wayne. And we are a Michigan-based husband and wife educator and podcasting duo that after having a UFO sighting in March of 2018, have started to examine UFOs and other paranormal topics within Michigan and beyond. Topics include UFOs, the paranormal, conspiracy theories, ghosts, alternative history and archaeology, cryptids, and all things strange and paranormal. So sit back, grab a drink, And come along with us on this journey down the paranormal rabbit hole. Hey, yo, 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 what's going on? Hey, what's going on, everyone? Oh, just another crazy day, or actually week, in paranormal and UFO stuff. Oh, I thought you were talking about education for a second, because it's Monday, and I'm already dreaming of Friday. (laughs) Yeah, that's every day until we get out of there. It is absolutely nuts. Well, we just finished up state testing, and now we've gone on to our district testing. And I swear, these kids think that like Mondays in May are optional. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, Mondays are optional. Fridays are optional. I'm going to have a ton of makeups. So it's like anything that I had planned for the rest of the year, I might as well kiss it goodbye. And my brain, it already feels like it's been taken out of like my left ear and just left in a Petri dish somewhere. I understand. That's kind of how I feel about the uh, UFO community right now. Talk about mind blowing and watching a few things go on and basically becoming a mouth breather after watching some of these things. Oh my God, the airing of grievances and uh, arguing back and forth and stuff it's uh i like my little podcast world I, i'm gonna i'm gonna stay right here no no time to piss in the pool so much nicer just to be here and and meet some really cool people especially tonight's guest with jared murphy oh great, yeah great sense of humor Great sense of humor, great topic. We talk for over two hours. It is one of my favorite subjects to talk about. He is a very interesting person, and the research he's doing is just awesome. So We can let you in on a little hint. The The interview was just over two hours, and we talked for an additional two hours off the record. <laughs> yes, we did. So it it was great. Absolutely. And uh, man, just a great time. And as you guys will hear, we hope to have him back on the podcast really soon with the re-release of his book, which we'll talk about more later. But man, it is just a crazy time. It's going to be a week. It's kind of like a, do we take a Tuesday off to watch what's going on tomorrow? I know there's so much news right now. That's right. I can't. I'm still testing. It's just, it's, it's insanity what's going on and we're going to talk about that. So I don't know, Michelle, I think it's already that time. What time is it? It's time for what's in the news. What is in the news? 
I said it was a crazy week for ufology, and I'm not kidding. Yep, it's that week, folks. Up first, we're going to talk about the first UFO hearing in years set for Capitol Hill. This is from The Hill from May 10th, 2022. Congress, next Tuesday, oh, we mean tomorrow. Dun, we'll, dun, dun. I know, we'll hold a hearing next on UFOs for the first time in more than 50 years. The House Intelligence Committee's Subcommittee on Counterterrorism, Counterintelligence, and Counterproliferation. Uh, can well, we get the kitchen counter in there too? I'd like to get new granite countertops. We'll hear testimony from two Pentagon officials under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence and Security, Ronald Moultrie, and Deputy Director of Naval Intelligence, Scott Bray, according to the New York Times. The Hill has reached out to the subcommittee for verification. The officials will likely discuss a key government report last year that revealed 144 unidentified aerial phenomena, the UAPs, encounters from 2004 to 2021. The committee's chairman, Andre Carson, the Democrat out of Indiana, tweeted that UFOs were becoming a national security risk. Americans need to know more about these unexplained occurrences, Carson wrote. Congress has not held a hearing on UFOs since the 1969 closure of Project Blue Book, an investigation into mysterious aerial phenomena based on an Air Force report. In the 50s and 60s, subcommittees fielded thousands of requests about ever imaginable topic related to aerial phenomena, but did not draw any explicit conclusions, according to House Archives. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the ODNI, released a highly anticipated report last June on UAPs, which almost fell short of drawing any conclusions about what the 144 UAPs might have been. ODNI did not rule out extraterrestrial life or alien technology, but said the UAPs could also be linked to highly advanced tech from adversaries such as Russia and China. Some of the UAPs flew near U.S. military facilities, and officials said that they would continue monitoring for more of the mysterious phenomena because it could pose a national security risk. The report drew widespread theories on the UAPs, but also some scorn from extraterrestrial enthusiasts who questioned why ODNI left out details such as the shape of the UAPs they had encountered. John Greenwald Jr., the creator of the BlackVault.com, a website that releases classified government documents, told Hill TV that ODNI officials had redacted so much information he was questioning what they were hiding. They won't tell you a single visual observation of what shapes these are, he said. It really solidifies the secrecy behind what these UAP really are. That begs the question, why? Why is simply a shape of a vehicle a threat to national security if they tell the national public? What could that reveal? Ooh, 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 teach. I got this one. I got an answer for you. Um, yes, the the bald guy next to me. With the long beard. With the long beard. Okay. The goat. <laughs> the, the, the goat. That's right. Very simple. If our adversaries are reading these reports, they can create drones and things like that that will look those shapes and we will think they're UAPs when they're not. 
It's all about counterintelligence. You read all those counter things. Well, we don't want them to know that what shapes we know that these things are because they'll reproduce them. And I do know for a fact that China and Russia like to sit off of our East Coast with little fishing boats and they send drones up into the sky to spy and to interfere with some of our training that happens out there. So it's pretty well known. I'm not giving away any secrets there, but that's why they're doing this. And I don't know why, you know, whoever they're talking to here, Greenwald or whatever, it's a very simple explanation. Don't tell people what you don't want them to use in their own drones. Because the next thing you know, they're going to have drones that look like Tic Tacs. And then we're not going to do anything about them because they're UAPs. So that's that whole part of counterintelligence kind of stuff you got to deal with. But all right. So can't wait to see what tomorrow is like and what reports and articles come out of. Well, everybody's been talking about it. And I'm sure everybody's going to talk about it as soon as the meetings are over and everything. So we won't be back on the air or in our little hideaway bunker of podcast recording for another couple weeks. So we'll let everybody else do the live streaming and stuff like that. Two weeks of absorbing whatever comes out tomorrow. Yeah. But we have another news article. I said it was a crazy week. Yeah, this one. And I know that we've heard stories um, and read different stories. UFOs left radiation burns and unaccounted for pregnancies. New Pentagon report claims. So this is coming out of uh, April 5th, 2022. From Live Science. Really? Live Science. Wow. That's pretty impressive. So encounters with UFOs have reportedly left Americans suffering from radiation burns, brain and nervous system damage, and even unaccounted for pregnancy. According to a massive database of U.S. government reports recently made public through a Freedom of Information FOIA request. The database of documents includes more than 1,500 pages of UFO-related material from the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, UTIP, a secretive U.S. Department of Defense program that ran from 2007 to 2012. Despite never being classified as secret or top secret, the ATIP only became known to the public in 2017 when former program director Louis Elizondo resigned from the Pentagon and released several now infamous videos of an unidentified aircraft moving in seemingly impossible ways to the media. Shortly after the ATIP's existence was revealed, the U.S. outpost of the British tabloid The Sun filed a FOIA request for any and all documents related to the program. Four years later, on April 5, 2022, the U.S. Defense Intelligence Agency, the DIA, honored the request by releasing more than 1,500 pages and 1,574 pages of material to The Sun. Now, I grew up always with my mom picking up copies of the Sun or the National Enquirer. And one of the like the lasting images in my mind of the Sun was what was it, Bat Boy? It was the boy that had like the the head and ears of a bat. So that was me. (laughs) Well, and and it here, you know. 
people like sit there and go, well, you know, it it's a tabloid, but it's like, is there any just that that small thread of truth to any of the stories in there? I mean, I know that they've made jokes about it. I think it was what was it, Men in Black, mm-hmm. where one of the guys actually picked up a copy of the Sun or National Enquirer, and that's how they got their news. So it's like you have to wonder. It's like, so was there any? That those could be the most truthful documents uh-huh. out there right now. <laughs> so who's to say at this point? So according to the Sun, the cache of documents includes reports on the biological effects of UFO sightings on humans, studies on advanced technologies such as invisibility cloaks, and plans for deep space exploration and colonization. Some portions of the documents were withheld in part for privacy and confidentiality concerns, the ATIP told the Sun. One standout document from the collection is a report titled, there it is, Anomalous Acute and Subacute Field Effects on Human and Biological Tissues, dated March 2010. The report describes alleged injuries to human observers by anomalous advanced aerospace systems, some of which may be a threat to United States interest, according to the document. The report describes 42 cases from medical files and 300 unpublished cases where humans sustained injuries after alleged encounters with anomalous vehicles, which include UFOs. In some cases, humans showed burn injuries or other conditions related to electromagnetic radiation, the report said, some of them appearing to have been inflicted by energy-related propulsion systems. The report also noted cases of brain damage, nerve damage, heart palpitations, and headaches related to anomalous vehicle encounters. It is unclear what kind of vetting process, if any, the ATIP used to investigate these alleged cases. The Sun has yet to share the full contents of the requested reports. The report also includes a list of alleged biological effects of UFO sightings on human observers between 1873 and 1994, compiled by the mutual UFO network MUFON, a civilian nonprofit group that studies reported UFO sightings. The reported effects of UFO encounters include unaccounted for pregnancy, apparent abduction, paralysis, and experiences of perceived telepathy, teleportation, and levitation. The report concludes that there is sufficient evidence to support a hypothesis that some advanced systems are already deployed in opaque to full U.S. understandings. So, and through our article link at the very end, uh, you'll be able to get to this article and find out even more details uh, from the Sun's initial report on their FOIA request. Crazy stuff. I said it was crazy. Well, once you start putting in the paperwork, because it's not, I mean, it's not that easy to file a FOIA request, plus it costs money to file a FOIA request. Um, I don't think that they would start digging if they did not feel that something was there to dig for. Well, I have to do some digging because I need to find out what exactly these DIRD, these DIRD documents are. I think they are, and, and I'm not exactly sure, so don't kill me for this, but I think they were like 
hypothesized, and this was back during the Bigelow Aerospace days when they were running the ASOP program. Their uh, scientists and things working for them came up with these documents. So, I don't know. The, the water seems so muddy right now with everything that's going on in the community with the infighting and and who's telling the truth, who isn't, who is Lou Elizondo and all of this stuff. Um, They're really trying to muddy the waters and confuse people. So, you know, I guess you just have to do your own digging and just go from there. All right, Michelle. I think we're going to bring on our awesome guest tonight. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Mr. Jared Murphy? Yeah, we, we've we got just a, a little bit of information about Jared. It's not aliens, worse, it's us discovering our lost history by Jared Murphy. Contains amazing new insights about our ancient history and our lost ancient advanced ancestors. Jared has been speaking about ancient, advanced, engineered soil found all over the earth and the very structures of ancient polygonal buildings and a never-before-researched aspect of the frequency technologies to build these amazing structures. Jared does field work, including a month last year with Michael Tellinger discovering new ruins in South Africa. Jared is planning new archaeological work at America's Stonehenge, South America, and the Grand Canyon. Jared's work is getting a lot of attention on engineered soil, bioengineered ancient advanced humans that may appear alien now but are in fact survivors of many ancient catastrophes. Jared's new documentary, Terra Core, is out on Not Aliens on YouTube and is getting a lot of positive reviews. Jared hosts a show on www.notaliens.com and on his Rockfin channel, including the archaeologist Jennifer Deo. Jared co-hosts on Everything Imaginable, Dark Hour Paranormal, The Cosmic Salon, and appears monthly on Spaced Out Radio, Forbidden Knowledge News, Freeman TV, The Cosmic Salon, Dark Hour Paranormal, Everything Imaginable, Three Beards, many more, and has been on Coast to Coast, Richard Hoagland's After Midnight, and many more. Jared reaches over 290,000 subscribers on the regular channel appearances and has 45 to 60,000 downloads monthly and on-network shows like Spaced Out Radio and Night Dreams Talk Radio. Richard Serrett's radio shows, including appearances on Coast to Coast, Jared reaches over a million on syndicated radio. If you guys like Randall Carlson and people like Graham Hancock, you're going to love this interview. But before you listen to this interview, and we welcome Jared to the podcast, I'm going to ask you to go onto YouTube and look up his documentary, Terra Core. There will be a link to it in our show notes. It's 38 minutes. Watch it so you can get the visualization of what we're talking about. Then absolutely make your way back to our podcast and listen to this interview. Okay, you're back. Awesome. Let's go ahead and welcome to the podcast for the first, but definitely not the last time as this is one of my favorite subjects to talk about. Mr. Jared Murphy.
Jared, thank you for joining us. Hey, Jared. Nice to have you on. Thank you so much for having me on. So what's new, man? What's going on? Well, well, I'm, uh, I just got the opportunity to go to the Galt archeological site here in, um, near Austin. I'm in Texas for the next few weeks doing some other research and some, uh, uh, general recon and wrapping up my book edits for the new version of it's not aliens worse. It's us. There will be a new color version with 88 new pages, but between that, um, and visiting the Galt site, that's, that's the immediate where I am and what's up. How are you? Well, we are doing well. I know we got some questions lined up that we want to fire at you and introduce you to our audience. Um, I don't know how familiar they are with you and your research. So I'm going to hand it over to Michelle and have her throw some things at you. <laughs> yeah, Jared. So can you give our audience a little glimpse into your background? Sure. Uh, thanks, everyone, for joining and or listening in the future, like Art Bell, somewhere in time. But somewhere near future time, it's me, Jared. Thank you for listening. I have had, this question has been asked uh, many different ways. So I'll give you the broad spectrum. I was the typical boy who, by the time I could articulate, had gone to the science museum and wanted to dig up dinosaurs. And then uh, given to date myself a little bit further, it wasn't very long before Raiders of the Lost Ark came out. And I wanted to, of course, you know, find the golden monkey and save the girl and kill Nazis. You know, it seemed like a, you know, fun, wow, who doesn't want to be that? And the Ark of the Covenant and Egyptian um, research. But when I was young, one of the things I didn't have an interest in was megalithic ruins. Like I had been to the Natural History Museum. There was just a bunch of rock banging Neanderthals with loincloths. I mean, who cares about ancient megalithic history? Because it was all primitives, dragging stones on top of each other. I had zero interest. And my history lessons kind of started in as young as second grade in the sense that my grandfather was a tank commander in World War II. And he landed at D-Day and he was in a tank uh, in the seventh armored uh, all the way to Berlin. And there's a lot more details in that, but it sent me down uh, just tremendous amount of curiosity about history. And I was just, he was a hero. He, I mean, not, I don't mean in the sense of the war, but I mean, for me as a young boy, I was fascinated by history from an early age and I adapted quickly to join the orchestra to the symphonic groups and the advanced groups. And I had an interest in sound and frequency. And I grew up uh, really being curious about uh, the universe as it was. I grew up Irish Catholic and it was very, I think that stereotype can hold for everyone in their mind. So I had a lot of questions about religion that weren't getting answered within the construct of the church. It was, you know, believe, uh, it was don't ask questions. It was, uh, um, you know, they weren't there. So it was like, well, what are the septuagints? And so this esoteric research started and, um, and I fortunately had a very special group of friends through junior high and high school that were kind of the same questions and they all went off to do uh, very brilliant things. I had a very lucky friend group and I grew up in an area where I just was able to access really good natural history and science museums and art institutes. And so it was a lifelong endeavor. I mean, quantum mechanics uh, in search of Schrodinger's cat learning um, in a phase where, you know, we were taught how to program, you know, computers were new. There wasn't a learn how to use Excel. There was no Excel. It was, I, I had the, you know, I was in that generation where the inner workings and mechanics of 
computing itself were on the table for us to learn. And there was no set behaviors that way. So by the time I had grown up and wanted to write books and make movies, I was uh, doing art, uh, historical remodeling. So 1880s, 1870s, 1890s. And I was, um, you know, always thinking that my income and my day job would turn into a, oh, it'll free me up to write full time and not be a poor starving artist. And then one day, uh, this is a more complete bio for everyone, uh, leaving out, I enjoy outdoor activities also and, <laughs> and climbing, which I've been doing five years. And, and my ties on the beach. Yeah, that's my, if I was only on Facebook. <laughs> Um, and assorted other apps. Uh, what, what happened was, is there was a point where I'm like, okay, we have to, I, I have to like get out of the day job and really start doing research and development. So what happened was it's not aliens worse. It's us discovering our lost history, which was my first book. And it was put out, um, spent almost two years, about two years. So what, what happened was, is, um, I was going to write a fictional book about reanimating mummies from the Paracas because they were even naturally preserved in the field to over um, 9,000 years that we know of in standard academia. And my, my idea for a fictional book in this case was, hey, I'm going to write a story about clandestine organizations and government reanimating ancient mummies. And I've mentioned this enough so that if this ever comes up, please, everyone out there, let me know because I haven't written the fictional version of it, but everyone's like, that would be a great book. You've and got the trademark on it. And the yes. Right. There's enough recorded <laughs> interviews of me talking about it, but the idea was that a handler would be assigned to a reanimated uh, ancient person or someone who was grown out of these ancient um, dead DNAs and that they would recall even older technologies and locations that would be up to these different organizations, good and evil around the world to collect not only the ancient equipment, but you know, locate ancient peoples. And I thought that'd be great. So three days into research, I see, I'm, I'm reading, I'm looking at stuff on the internet and a show comes up about uh, ancient lost city, the lost world of Z. Um, it was a documentary and it was, it was before, it was done before Brad Pitt did the lost, um, the lost city of Z, which was Colonel Percy Fawcett goes into the wilderness the jungles of brazil never comes out again i'm not ruining the movie for anyone that's like the premise it's like he disappears there's a chance the bones were found but he had been serving and was uh swore he found a city this is pre-machu picchu being rediscovered by uh, the americans in 1917 1919 and what happened was is he went back out in the jungle with his son and his son's friend and they were all lost and this documentary this is three days into me writing a fictional book. And I think I'm going to write a book for like nine months, seven months. I got to get something out there. And what happened was, is they stop on the banks of the river, uh, the Amazon. And this archaeologist says, this is Terra Preta. It's an ancient engineered soil and it's piezoelectric. It can filter heavy metals and carbon dioxide. It's thousands of years old. It's in an area of Brazil. We think at least twice the size of Spain. Well, anyway, let's go look for Colonel Percy Fawcett. And I'm like, hold on. I do historical remodeling. I am used to people coming in and adapting, repairing. You can see the history of a building that's, you know, like on the East coast, you know, they're lucky they have buildings that are two, three, 400 years old. 
and you can see what's happened over the years of where additions and repairs have been made. And you can, that, that those in itself even can tell a story, an anthropological story. So for me, I'm three days into research and I'm like, hold on. I'm still, I'm kind of interested in, um, at this point, if you're going to build a structure and three and a half years of research later, this ancient engineered soil is all over the earth and it's a biochar, it's made by man and it's in areas where there should be nothing based on our current, well, quickly, like, I feel like it's a, I feel like the current academic model has really collapsed entirely and we're really on a giant perpetual infinite mudslide. And so everyone knows it's collapsed, but they're obviously, I know, I know we've talked off air about there not being a curriculum for a new educational system, but right now it's like, we're in one big mudslide of, hold on, the paradigm doesn't work. If you have ancient engineered soil all over the earth, three and a half years later, the book came out. I had been doing field research in South Africa. Uh, I was there for a month. I've been to other places around the country and the world, and I've um, continued to do research and, uh, you know, uh, coast to coast and Richard Hoagland and, and Richard Searitt and uh, so many uh, wonderful uh, researchers and people that are passionate about doing this that I've been able to have the privilege of interacting with and really cool fans and uh, just it's been really great over the last few years to develop further uh, in not only rewriting and continuing on with the book but new work uh, the documentary I just put out on my YouTube channel on non aliens Terracore just it's been a really wild ride the last five years and that barely accounts for the expeditions I'm planning and all the other work. And there, there's your, there's your opening family of origin to Jared for everyone. Well, you left the opener right there when you, when you talked about Terra Cora. So can you tell us a little bit about your documentary? Yeah, thanks. Um, so part of these conversations is that, you know, I don't, I'm not the only person researching the soil aspect. Um, there are, there's been lots of research and it's ironic, but the visualization and even with my book, cause it wasn't in color and that's a problem. If you don't have a color book, it's hard to explain how do biotechnologies relate to the human eye or superhuman abilities. There's only so many things you can explain. So Terracor was an opportunity as a documentary to explain to people visually what they're looking at when they see the oldest image of Stonehenge, when they see, okay, these blocks are amazing. I mean, we've obsessively talked over and over about the size of megalithic structures and their uh, complexities. And I've, I've talked to, you know, I, I have a great friend in Jen Deo, the archaeologist, she's co-hosted and uh, we've worked on things together and collaborated, but you have really open-minded it's not about agreement, but you have these open-minded researchers that are out-of-the-box thinkers that have gone, hey, look, this this story, this narrative is just is so just not, it's not incomplete, it's just wrong. And then you have other researchers and people who are within the academic system that are like, yeah, they just used big, you know, they just used a lot of big crew, you know, a lot of ropes, and 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 and, and no one as as a builder and contractor myself. You don't choose the hard way. You don't, you don't, you don't choose the hard way. It doesn't matter how many 
uh, heaven's gate doors open or how many Buddhas you become or how many gods are pleased, you don't move a 1,000 ton block and shave it in place. You just, you just don't do that. And no matter what, you got to you, you got to visualize this. So the, the documentary is a way to explain to people uh, these buildings that are not only very difficult to explain the construction of the material, the geopolymers, uh, as in the artificial concretes and surfaces that make up some of them and the research that's been done needs to also now go into the soil and these materials that make up the foundations of these buildings. That it's just not a matter of, well, they packed the mud clay sand really hard they packed it down with a with a tamper and they just made the soil really hard and then the buildings were level okay anyone who knows anything about uh, especially up in the upper midwest like where like where i'm at in in you know the upper midwest you have a basement and they're only required to pre-compact what could be have been a swamp clay uh dirt or sand or all the above, they're only they're supposed to pre-compact a foundation to 90%, which means it can seem very hard, but they only have to do it for a couple of feet and in the ground. But when you have a building with hundreds of millions of tons of rock that are supposed to stay together on razor thin points to mitigate earthquakes, you have to start with the soil. And we are experimenting now today with metamaterials, which are really tiny particles. And the visualization of anything and everything that I'm describing for any of those who have already glazed over and wondering if there's another little Debbie to eat um, or pick a slice of pizza. I just did. So that's, there's some pre-show revelations. Yeah, well, about me. well, just, just to that point, um, just to let everybody know, I just, and you can find the link in our show notes to um, Terra Core, the documentary, but I also just posted it on our, Facebook page and our uh, Facebook group. So oh, nice! people can go ahead and watch that and uh, get up to speed. There's great visuals in that as well. Yeah. And that was the point is that 38 minutes later, which took so many hours of work. So I appreciate people watching. That's great. If they want to join Not Aliens, great. Otherwise, my new book will be coming out in a couple months and I'll definitely give you guys a heads up and would love to come on and talk about it. But the visualization of the documentary is so important to explaining to people the complexities of these ancient constructions and that we have instead of going for the golden monkey or like, oh, the structures themselves are beautiful, like the Parthenon or whether it's East or West, you know, we, we are fascinated by the blocks. We either get immediately distracted by the blocks physically themselves or the Corinthian column, but, and then, then we're like, well, we don't know how they stacked them. Yeah. But we also don't know how they mined them. Uh, we don't understand not only that technology, but the kind of instruments that would be necessary to measure so many miles under the earth and so many miles over, Hey, if there's an earthquake in this area, this is how this building's platform is going to be affected. And then there's definitely, because there's no jewels, gold burials, no one has cared or looked closely at the soil itself. And when I say soil for everyone listening, you know, don't think black earth, uh, although that's Terra Preta, it's, you know, black earth, black soil, it's Portuguese. It's specifically referring to a biochar that you would grow something in. It's highly nutritious. Uh, nutri the nutrient level, there's nothing like it anywhere on the earth. In fact, if you're more of in the paleo world, uh, there are black markets. They actually illegally 
to the best of my knowledge, Terra Preta is exported as a growing, a potting soil. Uh, it's exported actually out of Ukraine. Also, it's uh, known because there's different ancient biochars that were made by man all over the earth. And they don't correspond to any cultures we know, but they are highly nutrient rich. And so that's great. But the soils we're talking about are also soils that could be made out of sands, uh, granular crystalline structures. So basically crushed crystals and it could be artificial. It could be man-made crystals. That's the mind blowing part is that if you're young paleoanthropologist, I mean, if you're out there and you want to get into ancient architecture and do it as a degree, the reality is, is that this is something that we will all need eyes on and no one else is talking about it. It's the foundational structures themselves need to be researched because these materials may all be there. And with sedimentary nuclear DNA testing now being kind of like out there in the vernacular, like people are actually seeing articles. That means that it's not very far away from a lot of really the most amazing finds may be the dirt itself. Yeah. You know, I think that it is really cool that I kind of stumbled upon your work because when I start putting all this stuff together in my head, I start thinking about, there are actually some people out there that are really doing some really good work to bring this information up. And yours is a little different because you are talking about the soil but I would put you in that same category with like Graham Hancock, Randall Carlson, Christopher Dunn, um, Ben Van Kirkwick from Uncharted X, who we talked to on here. Uh, Brian, oh, that's nice. For- yeah, we had Brian Forrester on talking about the Paracas and the sites down there, uh, Sassy Waman and um, Alambe Tambo and, and all of that. And yeah, it seems like in academia, a lot of the old guard are starting to die off, retire, whatever you want to say. And the questions that have been coming up are actually being done in such a way by people like you and outside of academia, the Carlson's of the world and all of that, that you guys are actually doing it right. And that is that you're challenging the narrative, you're challenging the paradigm because you are able to use science, you know, I I don't want to say against academia, but you're using the tools to show, Hey, here's our data. You know, we're looking at the soil. It's like, it's like the black mat layer for the, for as evidence of the comet impact and the younger dryas into the ice sheets, which basically set the whole planet on fire and now you have this small iridium layer, but there's shock quartz and nano diamonds in here in Michigan. Yeah. You know, they're saying like uh, um, Saginaw Bay at this point was probably a fragment. It's a crater. It's an impact crater just north of us um, that the Saginaw Bay was an impact crater for part of this comet. And so there's actual scientific data that people are now able to produce. It's no longer just a mythological story. You guys are actually out there. And I, I know they, there's always this talk about, you know, UFO conferences and paranormal conferences here and there, but man, I think it would be amazing to get all of you guys, Hancock, Carlson, you, Ben, 
Forrester and anybody else who's doing this in the same building and have a huge, and maybe, maybe it's my ignorance that I'm not, you know, a hundred percent aware of all of this stuff. Maybe there is something like that, that, that is focused on that, but it would be just so awesome to have everybody in one place. And I'm not currently a speaker. However, as a shout out to contact in the desert, yeah. uh, all the above people, except for Ben, um, all of them have been at contact in the desert single conference. Um, I met, I met Brian Forrester there. Actually, I've, I've met him a few times. I definitely own a few of his books. I think his work is really great. Um, just getting out there in the field and constantly documenting it, it, documenting it's really great. And I have, I certainly have friends that, I mean, I've met Graham once, but, uh, the, uh, group and the, the idea of thinking outside of the box, like you said, and, having those dialogues, uh, definitely one of the places to see that for sure for anyone listening. Granted, it's been two years in the before time, but contact in the desert was definitely one of those things that everyone should participate in because everyone's there. Yeah, I, I, I agree, but I hope there's something else. (laughs) Well, that that's what I was thinking is that like when we first started our podcast, we interviewed Terry Lovelace, who was, you know, an abductee and had a horrible experience. And he wrote the book, um, devil's den. And, um, we interviewed him about that and he got us in contact with the people in contact in the desert. So we were a little bit, a part of helping advertise their virtual thing. This was during the whole COVID thing and all that. So we were a little bit familiar with it, but only from that standpoint, because you have to, you have to remember, I am a earth science teacher. And my wife is an ELA teacher and we had a UFO experience sighting, whatever you want to call it, that kind of put us starting to talk about it three years after that experience as a podcast. And we're, we are not this, this journey that we're doing is for people to kind of follow along and learn about all these different things that are actually out there. It's basically us learning the paranormal UFOs, all of this stuff. And it, it's just been a crazy, you know, ride. And so we don't know a lot about those inner workings. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just, I would love something like contact in the desert that is just, you know, ancient high technology, you know, all the way to the ancient aliens people, even though I'm not one of those people, I think it's ancient humans. We, we just, don't, yep. you know, we, we lost that. Well, I like the way Hancock says it. We're a species with amnesia. Yes. Yeah. So, and I think that has a lot to say. I don't know your thoughts. Oh yeah. The, um, I hope there's more stuff like contact, um, because, you know, Hugh Newman, David Hatcher Childress, uh, Giorgio, Eric Von Danigan. Yeah. They're all, they're all usually involved in there physically, but the, you know, they're, there isn't a really good national resource for us to really like there's these localized conventions. We don't really have a single app or a source of information for when they are and what the annual, you know, what the annual schedule is. And as far as what you said, I mean, I think species with amnesia is perfect. Although I, you know, I've always described it as it's as if we're in safe mode, it's like planetary safe mode. It's like we're in a giant broken bios and like we can get in and, basically reload the software but the the planet uh biotechnically and 
with us, it's, it's broken. And, you know, it's like, wow, we used to be more conscious and it's like, okay, well, what do we look like fully conscious with pineal glands at work? You know, was your third eye a hypothetical like the younger Dryas, or are we actually dealing with a third eye that once functioned and was it part of a greater biotechnical system, not just with Terra Preta, but with um, our feet that we know from like books like Born to Run uh, just brings it up, I think, as a great uh, connection of the human being connecting to the ground. It's like, oh, there's an electron exchange. And well, we know that, but why, why, or wasn't it more complex? Like the Nazca lines, are we looking at giant geo circuits? I don't mean the Nazca lines with spiders and, and monkeys and the, the big uh, drawings. I'm talking about the 25 kilometer long lines that don't waver or change. And are they part of, or the, or the Bolivian Nazca lines or the, they're not Nazca, but they're in Bolivia and they have the same kind of lines. And how many places around the earth were they terraformed away for farming or, or overtaken like what we thought were natural jungles in South and Central America. And they're not natural. They were once organized. And so we have these slivers of truths in the post-Younger Dryas world, but I think the technology in the ground, like Terra Preta, like other ancient biochars, and these connections to what we call superhuman abilities, and specifically what you brought up twice, uh, paranormal, and what we think maybe are UFOs, the reality is that, or the supernatural, they're not separate subjects. There isn't separate gods. There isn't separate um, divergent belief systems are different. They can be all divergent. They can be all separate. There can be different gods. There can be different experiences. Sure. You have a family of origin story. There's something different, but the reality is that we're all on one planet. We all seem to have the same design. We all seem to have off, like we're in safe mode. So the idea that this biotechnical world isn't part based on the technology we're seeing in megalithic construction and these giant diorite uh, columns and Corinthian columns that are single piece stones and Christopher Dunn's work, you know, like very precision stonework and the things that we've pointed out about all of it. The, the reality is that, yeah, this, this seems to have had a whole uh, chapter or multiple chapters on earth of a human history that involved a very advanced group of people who already got past the technologies we're at now. So the reality is that uh, what we think might be paranormal, it, it, it lends to be a lot more uh, cred credible that the technologies that we're accidentally tapping back into, or some people's genetic memories or dispositions to uh, connect consciously to uh, the collective human consciousness versus it being kind of like in a dream or a hunch or a eureka moment or what we think of as a projection and astral projection or a paranormal experience, you know, could be part of that larger, again, collective human consciousness that just zaps on and off in a moment, but we have a different family of origin story. And so to us, it's a, it's a devil, it's an angel, it's a demon, it's a, it's a paranormal, it's a ghost, it's a, you know, what have you, or then you have the other alien end where anyone who is an advanced human, just like we're doing gene crispers and genetic modifications on babies. Now, the reality is no ancient human has an obligation to reveal that they are human. They have no, they have no 
they don't need our permission to, oh, look, you caught us. You know, we're actually, we're aliens, but we're not, you know, they don't, they don't have to tell us that they've been on this planet for the duration or that they left and came back and we're sorry we left you. Uh, The reality is that uh, I think it's all related and not just like one begetting the other or random uh, evolution. The system, as I see it, is a safe, moded, advanced biotechnical um, marvel that we are sleeping on and kind of banging on the blinky board and getting various responses. And depending on our personal hand-me-down genetic memories mixed with this collective human consciousness, we are having experiences that we're just mislabeling and we're unclear on because we're not clear on our history. So it's easy to label it. Yeah, there's secret military programs. There's advanced technologies that we're reverse engineering. Absolutely. Are there space traveling anthropologists? Likely. But um, I think the truth is so bizarre. And so, well, the world itself is so bizarre. I mean, the, the, the lies we're choosing to live with. And at the same time, uh, a lot of people, I think, are suffering by not having the answers. Personally. How's yeah, I agree. Down? I agree because, well, we live in Detroit or very close to it. And I teach in Detroit and, you know, we see every year countless kids that come through the classrooms that, you know, have grown up in these concrete jungles and they're so disconnected from nature. They don't know what the nighttime sky looks like without light pollution. They don't know what real fresh air is like. So they spend their whole lives living like this. And, and I just look at the cities anymore as just giant concrete warehouses, almost like prisons without walls. And I can't help but think that if, if what you're hypothesizing with the soils and, and being connected in those abilities of those soils and what they could possibly do to humans to awaken them just by being present on them kind of leads me into my next question about the paranormal. I was watching uh, Dark Hour Paranormal last night, and he had uh, the couple on from Dark Horse Paranormal. And they were talking about going to these different cemeteries and things like that and getting these EVPs. And one person that went with them was a clairvoyant who described seeing this this being standing in front of them and the get the, the guest on this show said what he described is exactly what we thought he would look like because of the EVPs, the, the, the sounds we captured of somebody talking and they played it. Hmm. I'm wondering if these places, like we have Eloise, you know, uh, these haunted areas, these burial grounds and places like this, may be connected or or underneath it whatever the case may be uh to this biochar to this uh terra preta and if you're on that on that site this this could awaken the people on the site to be able to see this other stuff going on now i'm just throwing it out there but i'm wondering if anybody because i saw in your book you have the map and I don't have your book, but you put the map up on your, your documentary and, yep. and it shows all the places where it's been recorded, where this biochar Terra Preta is located. 
And I wonder if there's any correlation to where this, these high paranormal places are where people see things or experience things, maybe even UAPs, that there's something in the soil in the area where you're standing, maybe what you're driving over that does something to your cognitive ability then to see into these other realms, just a little bit, nothing like a ayahuasca trip and all of this. Well, cause you know, everybody looks for these theories of everything, right? The, the right. TOE. Well, and well, everybody will say these are connected somehow UFOs, Bigfoot, da, 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 da. they're, they're all something. And I'm even one of those people. Like, it sounds like there's gotta be a connection there. There, there's got to be some running theme to it. And when you started talking about this, I was like, wait a minute. I wonder if this could be the one thing that connects. It's a change in us. It's a change in our perception through this soil, that pineal gland, that third eye, the, from the, so I, I don't know. I'm going to give it to you and let you run with that. <laughs> well, I think you're, you're dead on. And that's one of the baby steps and the, um, because the subject's so vast, it's exactly what Terracor and the follow-up documentaries are about. Um, directly think about this. There's a number of areas between Michigan and Minnesota that are unglaciated. So you have likely biochars, that are, again, remember, even modern people, by modern, I mean people in the last 20,000 years or more, uh, primitive people can render fat out of animals and produce waste and compost and uh, through uh, charcoal filtering and some general primitive techniques, they can create a biochar and modern industry has mimicked it to a point. So like if you and I were going to open an apple orchard, there is a biochar mix we could buy that's better for growing apple trees versus better, better for growing uh, corn or wheat. So there are modern biochars. They just have never been able to, as usual, uh, somehow the ancient ones are so advanced, they don't know how to recreate them and they seem to self-replicate. And <laughs> that's unnerving, not because another tree dumped its leaves. They seem to self-replicate and maintain themselves. And so what's going on? Uh, if you and I stand barefoot or grow up, what, why is Minnesota, for instance, such as people don't think about this from the coasts, but Target is from Minnesota, Best Buy, Medtronic, a little company called 3M, if any of you use tape or sticky notes out there, not to mention they come up with over 30,000 patentable products a year. And well, it's 3M, right? Um, there's a massive list a uh, Pillsbury uh, modern flower. Like there wasn't a good way to clean flour uh, back on the farm to get all the seeds and the grime out of it. Modern flour mills were invented by, by, by the mini, by many in Minneapolis, the production, the flour production of the world was Minneapolis, Minnesota. And we connected the intercontinental railway. Uh, this isn't a sale for Minnesota, but it started to occur to me and this, you're the first person to actually bring this up. And it's, of course, you know, really interesting to me, which is what if all this creativity and all this industry and all this, uh, the term realtor modern, by the way, modern advertising was because of modern flower, uh, gold metal, Pillsbury, General Mills, they're all Minnesota companies, right? Um, but what is it 
And how is it possible if there was something about people living in areas where you have old Terra Preta, where they're, they just feel a connection. Now, here's the thing, depending on, we've proved uh, over a series of studies, and it's still being worked on, that memory itself can be passed from mother to child. So what are the possibilities that when you go around the world and suddenly someplace feels like it's always been home? Well, can I interrupt for a minute? Yeah, go ahead. If anybody's wondering about what you just said, I would I would suggest maybe we can use another naming, say instinct. Oh yeah. And and the passing this, of an instinct. And the, and that's what it is is what we chalk up to instincts where why do birds, animals, things you know, why do they know certain things right off the bat? Well, what if it is actually direct turned on? genetic memory where they what because we're not a bird and we're not a dog but what are the chances that they still function at a level where we give them sub subhuman brain credit what if it's not just an instinct as in they're reacting literally just out of a a hunch what if they're consciously waking up and they just know don't that's a cliff don't go over it i'm in a nest i should not go off yet I, you know what if they consciously recall it where we go somewhere and go, I'm really drawn to fill in the blank to live in, in this place. And I don't know why, or we all, you know, like for whatever reason we start slow and then um, how many years as a kid or whatever, did you run up the basement steps? Cause you did not want to stay in the basement. Well, could, <laughs> yeah, but could you imagine <laughs> if this turns out to be something that can be tested what that would do to throw off the whole um, um, evolution. Oh, it's so it, it would, it would destroy things because, you know, evolution says there's got to be 10,000 fish and one of them's got one little marking that allows it not to get killed while the other 9,999 get eaten by everything. Right. So yeah. it's, a, it, it's this mutation that allows one or a couple to survive in the new environment. But what if, what if the new environment triggers the genetic memory within these species and, and, and allows them to adapt? I mean, I'm just throwing it out there because, you know, I think you're, (laughs) you're you're well, and you know what, it's, it's super cool for everyone to listen and, and tune in on this because you are literally talking out loud about the problems I'm trying to address and solve and keep this vernacular, this description, this idea, all of it out there for people to start mulling on because this is the future. Um, Sedimentary nuclear DNA testing is upon us. Uh, They are finding wonderful things. It's already upsetting. They have Denisovan travel uh, patterns in the South Pacific that they're finding from sedimentary nuclear DNA. So we're talking literally atomic level dust is producing results. Uh, the flora and fauna of Doggerland, which is underwater in the and on top of it salt water, and they're producing um, DNA of of flora and fauna from just eight to 9,000 years ago that's been sitting in sedimentary saltwater for 9,000, 8,000 years. The reality is that if we are on a giant 
what was once fully commandable terraform planet where we had not only our genetic memories, but collective consciousness and not an unconscious dream state to connect to it or an accidental trauma or um, right place, right time. You bang on the blinky board and because you just happen to be standing in the right part of Terra Preta and there's a right combo of people around you and there's the right animal next to you because you chose a lab instead of a shepherd that suddenly you manifest in front of you or download or recall Cleopatra who manifests in front of you or Abe the farmer from you know a thousand years ago or a hundred years ago, you pick uh, and now you have a paranormal experience, or now you have a UFO experience, or now you have uh, some sort of spiritual experience, which I'm not saying you don't have a spirit or that you don't, you know, whatever, enjoy your origins and all that. But the reality is that there is technology in the ground, like Terra Preta. There is something about our superhuman selves. None of it adds up. And the corollary, when you stop applying the last 6,000 years of history, if you stop looking, I'm not saying don't look, there are microscopic, possibly at this point, shadows of truths in our, in, in, from anything we've read from cuneiform of what we've deciphered out of the millions of tablets that have not been, but of what we've told ourselves about our legend stories and myths across the planet in the last 6,000 years, which includes every religion, all of its post-Younger Dries. What about all the unwritten large megalithic constructions that clearly represent a history and a time prior to writing that only lives in our genetic memory and in the planetary genetic memory? So how much of this biotech system in safe mode can give you or I, why are some people, you want to step it further, like you said, depending on where you step, can you connect to the blinky board? Does that also explain the thing we call luck? Is there... A biotech is there a biotechnology where the even the semi consciousness of what's left? Uh, what if the final failsafe is for the planet itself, when and where it can, to help those that it on a most fundamental level believes could get the planet out of the safe mode it's in, give them what we see as luck. You and I, yeah, you and I are outside painting the house. Uh, both of our life courses seem similar, but maybe uh, the bees that are going about their business are like, there's a guy, he's like too close to our nest. We should sting him. But what if for whatever reason, they don't sting you, but they sting me. And what if that's actually partly tied, not out of random luck, but what if it's part of the biotech system that's left and functioning knows this guy is of a higher value. No matter what you're doing, he has a priority. Don't, don't sting him. Let him pass. You know, just food for thought Yeah, is there are ways that this system is firing. Um, that is very erroneous seems to make no sense, but when you break it down that there are what's called the seismic metamaterial. So nano size structures, to giant stone spheres and megalithic polygonal buildings. They're all designed around frequencies and energies. Well, biotechnology would include like, what does an unprogrammed biotech computer system look like when you don't program it? When, when the programming for the specific thing I'm about to say is to build you a home or a building, but left with no programming, we call it a tree. 
So what? Yeah. Well, you know what image is coming to my mind right now is that we are humans living on an organic computer that's been shut off. Yep, we are in safe mode. It's doing basic BIOS. You know, and I think we could clean. probably some people have been hinting at some ideas uh, of extrapolating this to actually the universe is the same way. There's a there's a possibility that the system is grander and works on a multi-dimensional like it's basically Rick and Morty, you know, that we have many multi that we're in a multiverse of, you know, one of many verses and this is the one we're in and outside of this planet uh, is the rest of it. Is there a main multiverse? Are we in it? Are we in a, a secondary? Are we, are we Rick and are we Rick's battery in the spaceship episode where he has to fix his battery? I mean, for anyone who hasn't watched that, it's your homework, go find the Rick and Morty battery episode. And you'll know what we're talking about here for multiverses. But um, I do that, that that's definitely there's episodes two and three. well you know uh uh, thinking about this uh making contact with the the biochar and and minnesota having all of these great uh innovations and things and okay you could say a few of them would be coincidence but if you start plotting them all out then you you gotta say it's more than just a coincidence it's no longer outliers it's it sounds like it's starting to become more in the, in the bell curve, in the normal range, but I'm thinking, you know, I'd be very interested to know how Elon, and I don't know much about Elon Musk. So, you know, don't hate me or hate me. I don't, whatever, (laughs) but I'm curious as to where he was born, grew up and how he like played outside maybe in the grass on maybe some Terra Prada that nobody knew about. Cause this guy, this guy is, is, um, uh, uh, I would say a superhuman in those regards, almost in the same regards as I would say, like um, Wim Hof or um, one of my favorite people, um, David Goggins, right? It's like a, he's like the, the African-American Wim Hof who just, doesn't stop once he got his mind in control he just you know tells everybody to go f themselves if they don't (laughs) like them and he goes and runs for miles i mean you know a hundred mile marathon in the desert with shorts a water tank and shoes and through death valley he goes you know and he was 300 and some pounds but became a very you know uh honorable Navy seal um, changed his life from nothing living in God. What was it now? I've read his book like three times, but now I can't remember where he grew up. It wasn't Minnesota, but it was somewhere like Indiana, just something snapped in him to now he, he can push himself like none other. And then you got Wim Hof and his breathing techniques. And then yep. uh, is, is it Stig? Steve Sieg Severinsen. Yeah. Yeah. That can hold his breath underwater for 20 some minutes or yeah, some ridiculous thing that these guys are able to push themselves in, uh, you know, talking about superhuman. Um, is this related to, to uh, you think to Terra Preta or at least 
an activation of some type of superhuman DNA somehow that they're able to tap in with or without the the connection to Terra Preta? Uh, yeah, let's go back right to the beginning of your um, segment here. Um, I I'm super impressed with Elon Musk. I haven't met him. Would love to. Uh, he is from South Africa and. Uh, I had done research there and South Africa, the savannas of South Africa has Terra Preta. And there is at least 400,000 kilometers of ruins that indicate a very massive, maybe, maybe Neolithic society. Maybe it was there pre, but there, there's definitely an unexplored, uh, very large open plains all the way North and into Zimbabwe and other areas. Um, uh, I was there in Waterfall Boven, and there is more than just stone circles. There are foundations after foundations of not colonial settlement, but there is actual Terra Preta, the same Terra Preta that's in North Africa. It's the same biochar Terra Preta. It's exactly Terra Preta. It's the same that's in Brazil. And Elon Musk, I'm not telling you I know where he grew up specifically, but he did grow up in a land of, filled with Terra Preta. And I hear his childhood was very difficult because of his autism and he definitely um, had some hard times. And at the same time, I mean, look at where he is today. And, and I look at it more from the standpoint of uh, you can choose to follow uh, or you can, you know, you should follow what you're interested in and you can have a lot of success with it. And that means different things to different people, but super impressed. But yeah, you're talking about someone who came from a land filled with Terra Preta that matches the exact Terra Preta in Brazil. Isn't that trippy? It's crazy. And when I was looking at your map of where all the, all of this was found, you know, and I'm thinking, and I had watched the documentary and I watched, uh, you know, a couple of years ago, um, you had a video of like a three hour presentation you did in Salem, Massachusetts, I believe. Yeah. Yep. I watched all that and, you know, I started thinking if the, if the whole planet or at least the continents were that are above water, above water, <laughs> were covered in this stuff, would we be able, would this be like a, a conduit of being able to send information? 100%. So yeah, yeah, like, you know, uh, like we're talking right now over the, the wires and through Zoom using software to do all that. Yeah. But what if we could do it through uh, the mushrooms sticking out of the ground and we, yep. you know, would, would be able to touch it and, and think with our minds who we wanted to talk to and, and make contact with them? You know, yep. I just. You have inter. Well, we already know now that the secret life of trees, we already know that tree different species connect and talk. And they don't just do it directly. They also use a fungal network. They use bacterial networks. Uh, you have Dr. Susan. I am always blanking on her name. I am so sorry. One of these days, I'm going to interview her. And I even wrote about her. And I'm outing myself for every every time I forget her last name. And she's the one doing the research on plants speaking to each other in Seattle, in Washington, and in Vancouver. And, and that is tremendous research that... Um, we weren't looking at, and I know a lot of vegans out there think that it's okay to eat plants and things and they, they're not screaming, but it turns out they are <laughs> your salads, just little voices. Just, and uh, yeah, just, just, <laughs> just to make the vegans all, all scream. you out there that yeah. nightmare. Yep. Just so you know, you're the plants are, you are hurting them every time you stab <laughs> a fork through them and but their they little sure body do parts. taste good uh, with anyway. ranch dressing. So, um, 
<laughs> yeah. See, there's, then you can just drown them before you eat them in the ranch. Um, hurt them twice. The, uh, I, I do think that there is, there, there, there is something to this entire global system being in a safe mode and broken. And I think having more documentaries out that show people the visualizations of this and then connecting it to physical abilities like superhumans, like Wim Hof and Stieg Severinsen. And, and there, there are definitely ways for each of us to reconnect with those abilities, which include, of course, trying the practice. And again, you might have a mental conscious filter. It's like I was raised Catholic or Lutheran or Christian or Muslim, or I was raised uh, with some Hindu or Krishna background where, or some other Eastern, um, just some sort of Buddhist intent where you have a label on the feeling or sensation you're having that, and that may shape your immediate experience with a different consciousness meditation modality that is really reactivating on a very minimal level, or maybe in a really crazy connected level, your ability to be aware of a collective human consciousness or be aware of what was once an interspecies connection system that not only ran into the soil or into the air, but through frequencies and vibrational energy, it wasn't just this random, like a Morse code, but an actual dialogue that was sent and received in your pineal gland that you didn't, you didn't need an external, you don't need a brain chip. Shout out to Elon. You didn't, I mean, he's working on it, but you didn't need an external one. Your pineal gland was, you know, it'd be interesting if in the pursuit of what we, what we call medicine right now, or genetic experiments, it would be interesting if ultimately someone could really truly work out the pineal gland. And instead of worrying about um, an external mechanical brain chip, if they could work on reactivating the pineal gland, I mean, really redoing it. I mean, Oh, it's calcified. It doesn't function. It's like, okay, enough with the crystal woo woo. How do we, well, I'm not saying that it's not actually physically uh, damaged. It is, but I think it would be really wild if, as we admit, and I'm going to tie this into something, by the way, if we would admit that we're part of a larger global fallen, um, more advanced human race that had these technical abilities. And as you stood on the soil and as you walked by, instead of crushing 10,000 plants into an essential oil that you then break back down into a diluted uh, solution for you to heal or cure yourself or help with a sickness or ailment, but a very walk in the garden with those items around you would be enough of the frequencies and energies without you actually destroying them that the, that your taste buds in your mouth was actually there for you to check and taste or touch and sense the system that you could tell how healthy it was, but the, the very energies around you would do that. The soils you stepped on didn't just connect you physically around the earth through what's above water, but that below water and in water. And what we think of as the consciousness of water itself, uh, there is solid evidence that orca um, that there are creatures in the ocean, basically besides orca that have brain power that is as uh, or more than we have. So would we also be connecting to these other uh, like in the biblical references in Genesis that I talk about in my book uh, pre-flood, it was, we talk to animals. What, what if that sliver of truth is true? What if we were connected to this biotechnical system? What if the garden is the only way that 
the Bible could describe the interactions of this biotechnical grid. And it just remembers walking in a nice, pretty garden. And maybe the naked part is because we just can't leave sex out of anything. And the reality is, is that we could be connecting with animals that are underwater uh, or anything. And, and the idea of animal, the idea of lesser than or whatever, not everything's equal to, I mean, we can get lost down that rabbit hole. Um, but the reality is that it's a system, like you said early on, I, I like what you said about, you know, there's not, I like to say that there's not a manual somewhere that somebody picks up and goes, see, it says here, we're supposed to have 462 billion mosquitoes and we're supposed to have 80,000 bison. And no, wrong. We don't have a complete paleoanthropological record. You are an exception if you become a fossil. You are literally an exception. And then on top of it, we have 1 million sea creatures that are made out of gooey nastiness that are alien themselves, including octopus, that and I mean, yeah, everybody don't get hooked on every word here, but in all literal sense, they are not boned. These are animals that are going to die. They are going to disintegrate and we are going to have no physical record of their gelatinous, nasty, slimy, weird, nightmarish, call a Cthulhu, HP Lovecraft body. <laughs> that keeps everyone in technicolor oh, listening. Wow. Uh, <laughs> I'm... I'm- would we even recognize what communication would be like then at that point? Would, would, would we be able, it wouldn't be like, a, okay, okay, here we go. Aliens are always talking telepathically to us. Whenever somebody's getting like, well, hopefully not probed, but, uh, probed. you know, unless you pay an extra 20 bucks for it. But, um, little yeah little side joke there peeps um or but uh twenty dollars is twenty dollars as they say but um yeah they they are they are oh, boy, i think they're um, rough in michigan holy crap <laughs> but yeah. 20 bucks is not 20 bucks but, sir you know it, it, keep your 20 it, abductees always talk about these things don't these these grays the the insectoid ones they don't speak to them with the mouth they are communicating telepathically all right some say that they're being communicated with based on emotion like they are they feel that they're they're being given a feeling to figure out what this being is trying to tell them while they're you know implanting embryos in them or, or extracting them to raise them as hybrids or whatever the case may be in, you know, is, is, is that what the communication would, would be like at that point, you, that way you could talk to animals and it, and it's funny because, and I know Jared, I I keep on, I see you want to jump in there, but uh, it's, it, it, but (laughs) no, I mean, yes, but no, I'm just All right. totally enjoying this, yeah. man. Go to town. Um, we are in no it's, hurry. It's kind of interesting. On a roll. And, and I know they were horrible movies. I think they were, but Aquaman in, in, in our mythology of, of superheroes and uh, going back, you know, in, in time to stories of, of beings being able to talk with animals. And it, it just kind of weird that you know what if you could communicate with animals because we are on this different level and a lot of things that that 
people don't know, and I just want to point this out, we keep on talking about pineal glands and stuff like that. I did some research and found out in one of the textbooks that I had, when I was teaching kids how to read maps, because it's kind of scary that ninth grade kids don't know north, south, east, and west. But come to find out that humans right between their eyes and their sinus cavity have a small crystal and they think that that is related to being able to as when we were just little tadpoles you know back when before we evolved that this was a way that we were able to read the magnetic fields of the earth so that we could tell as we swam along north and south And so the experiment is go home and ask your parents and friends, how do they know directions? Do they look, you know, do directions based on landmarks? Okay. If I go to this, if I'm going this way, when I hit the store, I know I got to make a left or are they able to stand out there and go, okay, I know North is that way because the sun is on my right hand side at this time in the morning. So I know I got to go West. So I need the sun at my back and go that way, you know? So that was kind of the experiment. And it's like, what if, what if that, you know, there's things about us that we're just, we're just figuring out. And then we're overlaying, like you said about the, maybe you were Catholic, maybe you were Muslim, maybe whatever. And then we apply this rule set. I want to say this paradigm, this belief structure over the top of it so that the truth of what that little crystal that's lodged in your sinus cavity, I think there's a lot going on that we have so suppressed and actually have been oppressed to not learn and to figure out. And everything is in place to keep this matrixly world going. And, and I, I think we're on this broken planet and, uh, you know, I was taught earth system science instead of earth science, it's earth system science. And it's all about how, you know, you change the carbon dioxide levels that becomes a positive feedback loop to increase the temperature. The temperature goes up. Therefore that melts more glaciers. And therefore you put more fresh water in the ocean, you know, this, right. What about before? Why can't we apply that to other yeah. things? It seems like it's only what we think is important and to, to fulfill a narrative. All right. So I'm going to shut up now Yeah, and I'm going to let you pull that all apart no. and talk about it however you want. <laughs> well, the, the dialogue that we're having right now for everyone that's listening, if you can drop your internal narratives and, and family of origin stories and general, like just pause on belief systems. And when you think about a species with amnesia, and when you think about a giant biotechnical human safe moded system that we're in, when you look again, giant megalithic buildings, stone spheres, uh, bio ancient biochars all over constantly finding ruins where they're not supposed to be and showing signs of, multi-generational use cities off the coast of Cuba that are 2000 feet deep and a genetic history that shows that Denisovan, Neanderthal and humans were breeding together 
well around the time that Mount Toba went off, which was a super volcano, putting us into likely the nuclear winter that caused uh, what really was the Younger Dryas in the sense that whatever was left glaciating and screwed up 12,600 years ago when the super event happens again, which is really like, isn't it really just the wrap up of what had happened 75,000 years ago? And when we look at Hindu. Yeah, um, Jared, I hate to interrupt. You're on a roll, but I feel like I've done a disservice to the audience because I have the cheat notes yeah. of kind of what we're talking oh, about. First of all, it, just, just for everybody. Yeah. Just so everybody knows that Jared and I had a conversation that was probably about an hour long the other day um, when I first reached out to him. So keep that in mind. We, we talked about a lot of this stuff, but there's a lot of new things that are happening in this conversation in real time. So secondly, I've done enough research through these timelines that I'm wondering if some of our audience is not going to know about what happened 76,000 years ago. And then the younger Dryas and, and all of this, and it was, you know, the, the two kicks and the, yeah proverbial nuts of humans (laughs) imagine you're part of a wonderful society that was going along great according to hindu vedas there we had all the technology and nuclear weapons and flying machines and then a super volcano goes off that no one has control of and we get nuclear winter plus or minus a thousand years approximately seventy-five thousand years ago this volcano goes off and it's like basically nuclear war for the planet sends us into chaotic oceans and chaotic um, land living. Uh, one of the theories is that the breeding human pairs was reduced to six to 23,000, which is just such a, we could deconstruct that. But then Neanderthal, Denisovan, humans all show signs of, of basically breeding together. But you have these elongated skull people, which ironically know the practice who we started talking about. There's been no genetic testing of them. Shame on every institution that hasn't, you know, that should be like the front page of the Smithsonian and National Geographic as they do results every month. I mean, there's. I thought Brian Forrester was able to get genetic testing done on him. Uh, he did. Uh, in fact, I got to talk to Nassim Harriman okay. in person about that a couple of years ago. He actually located soft tissue uh, between the ocular nerve and the brain. I mean, so one of the things you could argue is that a very advanced human also has cellular systems that don't want to degrade, not just uh, circumstantial good preservation conditions. There could be some references to that. Brian's done, uh, he's done some work, but the, and, and there was a whole book about it. The, the one thing we can say for sure on the genetic differences is that it, even from what the direction his research was going was saying that the genetic testing was leading them to the Crimea region of Europe, but the cranial, it's not cranial deformation. We're like the practice have larger volume skulls. They have different, their cranial um, suture lines are different. Their form, their for magnum, their arterial dissections going into the brain through the neck are different into the skull. Um, so there's a number of indicators that make them very mysterious. But all of them, Denisovan, Neanderthal, and a sort of other lots of humans that we're discovering, are simultaneously surviving this massive cataclysms approximately 75,000 years ago, which causes flooding, 
and gosh knows what kind of lava and ash and whatever, it leads to a lot of areas that end up freezing. So you end up with these glacial periods between 75,000, and there have been older glacial periods. But right now, we've had the super volcano go off. And so from 75 to 12 and a half-ish thousand years ago, life on Earth is challenging no matter where you are, but for different reasons. Like on one hand, you have the theories of giant, massive glacial lakes on top of glacial systems that now, in one of the theories, and when we start talking Randall Carson and we start looking at um, Graham Hancock and the, some of the other theories, uh, like Robert, Dr. Robert Chalks, uh, you know, the idea of sun flares or, or Brian Forster's work, what we are talking about is so, so possibly a natural, a further natural disaster. 12,600, give or take years ago, causes the last of these large glacial bodies to break up and cause what we think is worldwide flooding. However, there is a city off the coast of Cuba. It very much, it was found due to um, treasure hunters that were authorized by Cuba, by the government, to look for Spanish galleons. This city off the coast of Cuba is at least 2,300 feet deep and no clandestine organization that we know of, except for with super subs, has been able to go down there and do anything with that city. And I believe there's more around the world that were above ground in this particular case. Uh, there are some theories as to how tectonic plate shifting could account for it, like hydrostatic plate shifting that the waters of the crustal displacements of the earth actually shifted so much and dramatically within a short time period that you have the city dropping 2,300 feet. I think it's more realistic that it was above water pre Mount Toba or close to it. And it ended up underwater, which means based on the Hindu Vedas, if we're looking for slivers of truths, that there's millions of years of human history. And then more importantly, based on paleoanthropological evidence found by uh, actual standard academics, written about those finds by Michael Cremo. Hey everyone, we hope you're enjoying the podcast. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors and some friends of the podcast. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Hi, this is Chris Lato of the Chris Lato YouTube channel, retired F-16 pilot turned UAP investigator, and you are listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. What is up, you guys? It's your girl, Gemma Jade from Gemma Jade YouTube, Moonbear Oracle, Paranormal Chop Shop, and Spaced Out Radio After Hour Show. You're here listening to Wayne and Michelle with the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. What's up, everyone? This is Burton. And Aaron from Lost in the Dark Podcast. 
and raise your horns because you're listening to Wayne and Michelle from Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. Hey there, it's Richard Serrett, occasional weekend guest host of Coast to Coast AM and host of The Conspiracy Show. And you're listening to Wayne and Michelle's Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Hi, this is Seth Talk from MUFON and the author of You Have the Right to Talk to Aliens and the host of Alien Spirit TV with Sev on YouTube. You're listening to Wayne and Michelle at the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Hello, everyone. This is Michael Schrett, military aerospace historian and private pilot. And you are listening to Wayne and Michelle at the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. And we're glad to have you with us today. This is Christina Gomez of Paradigm Shifts and the Debrief Media, and you're listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. Hi, this is Alex Nowitzki, and you're listening to Wayne and Michelle on the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. What I'd like to show you guys is the infinite pool of experience and awareness which can be found at luciuslabs.com. And it's a book that I've written after basically meditating for 27 years. Basically it goes over modern physics. It takes you all the way from modern accepted physics to understanding that we live in a layering of conscious types within time and that our consciousness is eternal. What's happening, ladies and gentlemen? This is Big Willie with the UFO Garage Podcast, where we're all about UFOs, aliens, and all things weird. I also run a podcast, Band of Bearded Brothers, with my brother Micah, B-O-B-B for short, and you are listening to Wayne and Michelle with the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. So take a seat and buckle up as they educate us on all things woo For those that want to go look for consolidated uh, dividing rod to go look at paleoanthropological finds by standard academia that show that humans, anatomically correct humans, have existed for hundreds of thousands, 2 million, 5 million, 7 million, 20 million, 60 million, 120 million years, that these were not intrusive burials or false finds, that humanity has a history that's outside of the written record. So if you suspend your personal beliefs, if you uh, don't take my word for it, this is all something that everyone should have a personal interest in. This is all our amnesia. And everyone listening is valuable. Everyone listening to this podcast and this show, you all have genetic memory. You all have hunches, instincts, places you've gone, weird things you've seen, projections, dreams, lucid dreams, things that you've chalked up to astrology or paranormal, things that- Deja vu. Yeah. And all of it, is relating to a human society that existed quite well globally 
with TerraPrate and other engineered soils and advanced constructions that manage earthquakes and other energies and frequencies and seemingly connected to themselves and possibly through biotechnology and not as a world as we see it now, but in a terraform garden in a way, in a very Zen way, maybe um, don't get stuck on any individual image, but the, 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 then the problem is it fell apart. And I would like to know why it fell apart. And I would also like to know, not that I'm looking for someone to blame, but that don't hurt either. And in the meantime, I, I want to, I, I would like to not have cancer. I would like to not uh, grow old. I would like to uh, explore the universe, explore the dimensions, explore what's under our water and above our skies. There are so many questions and things, uh, not to mention uh, who doesn't want to hold their breath for 22 minutes and do it in a Zen state while they astral plane without ayahuasca, because you don't need the crutch because your brain does it consciously. Uh, I think we need those um, psychedelic explorers, those psychedelic uh, cosmonauts. We need those people to that are willing or just they're dying of curiosity. I mean, there are people who've done it, you know, Graham Hancock, uh, uh, Sylvia Ivanova, a new earth lady. I mean, there are definitely people who've documented really crazy uh, experiences, collective experiences. Sufis experience collective dreaming and collective consciousness. There are many different organizations and people that have claimed to it over the last few thousand years. But all of this when in this dialogue, I think people can start imagining that if you connect it all together with a global society that fell after some massive global cataclysm and then gets hit again, because although they're recovering and a number of them were in underground structures, and again, we don't have time to cover all of it. We can cover whatever you want, but to paint everyone a global picture here, that your memories, uh, your hunches, your instincts, your questions, your drives to wonder who, what, why, and where you are, are tied to a collective consciousness that has some of the answers or is part of the questioning that your instincts are hand-me-downs with answers. It might be as simple as you only recognize a block or a building or a system or a way or a habit or a whistling or a sound of music. The reality is that there are ways that to unpack the hobbies and likes and dislikes and where you go and your your draw to hobbies or places or things you find beautiful or ugly or fear or embrace. I mean, there are a number of ways that this broken amnesia, you know, this amnesia, the system that we're a part of still functions, but leaves us wondering, but yet knowing, but wondering how it once all functioned and worked together. And that, that therein lies one of the great mysteries, but I do think tabling what we're discussing will help people look at it in a new way. So the next time you have that hunch or instinct, my hope is that you let it travel now, not because I've given or we've given in this conversation a dialogue that says, hey, here's the framework on how to think about it, but be open to collective consciousness and memory, stored genetic memories, and that your hunches and instincts about something, if you travel it down, but connected to something you never knew you'd be interested in, whether it's, you know, visiting an ancient city that has, you know, pre-dynastic megalithic polygonal construction, or you visit somewhere and you're like, I just had the craziest feelings. I was at one of my favorite bands and I was at a concert that was camping and I was standing on a field and I have no idea. I've never, I've listened to their music for years and I even gotten high and I've never felt like that before. Were, were you standing on Terra Preta? 
in a place that was easier for your sleeping um, consciousness to download or connect back to something that is much more ancient, powerful, and complex. Speaking of that, um, do you think that there's kernels of truth hidden in religions and their symbology? And what about things like sacred geometry and how we seem to end up, you know, back at the number nine, a lot of the times. And yeah. So what do you, what do you think on that? Softballs folks, he's throwing me softballs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, I actually know until the twist there in the end, I think the word sacred geometry is the first thing that I like to hang on uh, because it's how we kind of create a fog of history, a fog of war is that, you know, no one calls their, their smartphone sacred. You know, you don't have a sacred phone number. You don't, you know, you don't have sacred uh, shades on your windows. The amount of science and technology and machining and mass production to wire together a blind is ludicrous. The kind of things like, how do they do that? Uh, To watch the technology that we have now. But again, you know, the big example is like the cargo cult that Eric Von Danigan has talked about for years that had never seen an airplane. And now they worship airplanes because airplanes bring chocolate and food. And Mm -hmm. cargo culting is what happened, I think. And as we have explored the term sacred geometry, I think what you're talking about is the most advanced technology. And it's been said by a number of different people, the most advanced technology looks like magic. And so you assign the word sacred. It has to be sacred. If it's in us, we have an elevation for not the inanimate. I mean, again, you know, we joked about, uh, we joked about people like, all right, hey, are you going to just be as happy to eat plants when you find out they scream? Um, right. You know, is that, is that going to be too much? But the reality is that we're part of a conscious system that is connected, not unintelligently, but not as what we're describing as natural. So if it's programmed, but still alive and conscious, if we see some of these repetitive geometrical systems, sequences, the Fibonacci, you know, as we look at these things and say, well, it's sacred. Okay. Because you don't understand the science of it, or you understand that it's very important because it's repeated in living structures. So you've elevated it, but that vernacular, that definition, I think does more harm than good because it takes the science. It puts woo, the very word, uh, puts, it's not, I am making a distinction here. I'm not trying to devalue um, the very building blocks that if they are intentional, who knows the kind of man hours and uh, brilliance and beauty it took to create uh, what we call sacred numbers, what we call sacred geometry, what we call the what are in reality the building blocks to everything if they were constructed it was clearly one of the greatest feats by anyone who's ever invented anything and that being said to understand it it doesn't help to place sacred in front of it 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 just mystifies it 
we're standing on man-made soil that filters carbon dioxide. And for everyone who cares about climate, no one's talking about the fact that there's square zillions of miles of planet that's doing it because why did they already figure it out? How much pollution do they have? How is it that we have 8 billion humans that only occupy the couple states of Texas or basically two and a half South Africa's? And that's the entire human population, an acre piece. Shout out to Michael Tellinger. But that's, a, that's the math that I thought was a great analogy for everyone to picture. We're not overpopulated. We can feed everyone. And the complexity then of this interconnected system shows up on this biological layer where sacred uh, geometry shows up. And then one will argue, okay, well, is it the whole universe? Is it the whole, you know, are we in a virtual world? You know, how could it all be organized? Well, you know, I, I've never thought of using a creationist in the subject, but there are creationists who believe, well, you can see the hands of a creator in that all of it has a building block. That's one of the, it's one of the arguments for it, but it's just, uh, again, your, your origin story is going to determine the filters. But then as we honestly research everything, I think one of the worst things you can do is put, we, and, and it's not you, it's just the idea of sacred as a word. It's like, is it the moon temple or is it the ancient iPhone store? You know, when you call it the moon temple, it's really hard to get away from 50s and 60s, you know, loincloth, uh, you know, Barbarella imaging uh, with Jane Fonda as it is to then say it's, well, it's an iPhone store. They sound ridiculous to say in the same sentence. Yet you called it the damn moon temple, which it may have been for a thousand or 5,000 years because the squatter culture was sitting on it. But prior to being the moon temple, it was a high frequency energy center that sent and received signals galactically, uh, solarly, uh, interplanetary moon bases and responded to self-replicating, uh, self-structuring, biotechnical, uh, you know, uh, biological brick building satellites that were sun powered that went out, you know, that we, we're talking about a system that have building blocks on the nano scale that by again, using the word sacred as for those that don't know. And as you're looking at all these subjects, I'm challenging you to just drop things that put filters on that, you know, the system is so bizarre and so big yeah, it's like use the word when you're within a group to say, look, I'm saying sacred, but I know I mean this. I'm saying paranormal, but I'm going to, I mean this experience. And then try to discern what the experience is or was, not to explain it away or to disprove a faith or a system of belief, but to look at one more indication that this system is interconnected. It is not regional, it is not by race. It is not just human or, 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 or animal. It is a global system in safe mode. And that, that, that's something I just want to really emphasize for people because no matter where you are in your research, you know, eventually you'll, you'll infinitely figure eight your way around in a kaleidoscope and you'll 
hit all these points, but I just want to try to help everyone get a foundational uh, start to ask these questions. What are the foundations of these buildings? What is the DNA of these elongated skulled people that are found all over the earth? Why are there stone spheres? What do their shapes mean? What metamaterials are they made out of? What is the sedimentary DNA analysis doing off of an island that was above water that's you know, 2,300 feet deep off the coast of Cuba or somewhere else? Uh, what are we finding? And put those questions out, start trying to answer them, and put this whole thing together in a way that doesn't start with you know, some really primitive early thought that's, you know, somebody 4,000 years ago decided the rock banging monkey can help build big blocks on pyramid shapes. And, you know, then, then we end up having this very convoluted, um, you know, just this, or, or it can't possibly be advanced humans because we're as advanced as we ever were. Well, then aliens make a lot of sense. I mean, it's crazy to jump from, you know, horse and buggy to, well, these buggers aren't going to move along. Let's just, we're aliens. Let's, let's help them big, really tall stuff so they can move their horse and buggies around. Right. Just right. The, the, it's kind of like coming up with um, a, a religious subtext uh, or narrative about your, uh, your blinky board <laughs> analogy of, of the, the, the seven forty seven um light board that you know you happen to hit it a certain way and a light happens to turn on now all of a sudden you got this huge story and now it's the sacred seven yeah four seven panel you know or yeah. whatever the you case built a temple be. around it yeah. with three layers right right yeah. and only certain people with the funny fish hats can yeah. hit the you know <laughs> is he a good person and will he go to heaven Bing. Yeah. Oh, red light. Sorry. Yeah, do we toss? Is she is she guilty of witchcraft? Mac it. Bing. Green light. Oh, sorry. Yeah. You know, yep. time to set you on fire. We really need another second. Another virgin's got to go to the volcano. Right. It might exactly. help. Um, so that that therein lies the issue is that as society broke down was there a time that some of this nanotechnology that connected to a semi uncrusted pineal gland still functioned? Were there people who could wield what appeared to be magic because the technology was unexplainable, you know, touching glass and having it light up touching glass and having a moving picture, um, uh, taking someone's photo, uh, recording their voices, uh, flying. I, there, holding your breath and, or lifting cars off humans or uh, being 20 feet tall or 15 feet tall, or, you know, there, there's definitely uh, six fingers, double rows of teeth, elongated skulls. Oh, it's an anomaly. Oh, well, giants aren't real. Um, evils, you know, like, I mean, we, we look simultaneously closer to Lord of the Rings and Star Trek and beyond more like Q of Star Trek for those deep fans that know. Uh, again, we, we somehow wrap from Merlin of the round table in King Arthur's court and Merlin of some futuristic way beyond Elon Musk uh, connected society. But 
we just have to have an honest conversation about what we know and what we don't. And if there's any single entity of evil on this planet, it is academic hubris and the concern about looking good or being right in the face of we are, we are all, it's a joke. Like if, if, if anything of what I'm saying is true, the monumental task of analyzing nuclear sedimentary DNA remains of buildings, of animals, of people that are mixed together over billions. And I mean, like when we talk about how many stars in the sky and all the grains on a, on a beach, uh, if all those grains are a society, uh, you know, when you, it, when you tear up a road and redo it, this is one that I like to talk about. If you tear up a, you've seen drive along on the freeway cross country, they'll tear up a concrete road. And then you have the giant chunks. Well, someone jackhammered out each chunk and then they carried them to a pile. And then they crushed those rocks right there on an assembly conveyor belt into a rock crushing machine that got them down to ultimately uh, handheld down to crushed gravel. And then that aggregate is put through a machine that returns it to a fine powdered dust in order to make concrete again. How far away are we from the quantum computer that can calculate every side of the grain of dust and put every piece back together and put it all back into the rocks, into the in, and, and form it back into the gravel road or back into from gravel to boulders to the road it was. How far away are we from being able to compute that via nano sedimentary DNA analysis and, and the type of quantum computing that could take the nanobot information, for instance, from a archeological site where they release nanobots into the air. And they knew that like, let's take Tiwanaku or Pumapunku, like you were mentioning earlier, or Sacsayhuaman and you have villages in the area. And over a few thousand years, they quarried out stone and they quarried out um, maybe even Terra Preta. But what if they could send out a nanobot cloud and it could analyze the sides of every stolen block or crushed polygonal megalithic block that was used in a fort or a church or a college or a building. And then everything that they could do is pull all that data back and reconstruct. Even if you had crushed a road down to powder, imagine being able to put each of the grains back together, something that we would not imagine we could do in a lifetime. Quantum computing and nanotechnology would be able to do. What kind of magic would that be when we're looking at um, uh, you know, basically Isaac Asimov's the found, you know, the, the movie, oh boy, I'm blanking on the name of it. The one with, was it November man? The one with the, uh, the boy that wanted to be real and he was a robot and, uh, ended up in the bottom of the ocean. And, um, it was based on an Isaac Asimov book for everyone out there listening, but it was a movie. I think Robin Williams was in it where ultimately the boy is a robot and he's left underwater in the ocean and he freezes. And of course, hundreds of thousands or so many thousands of years later, basically white uh, gray alien type people are doing archeological work and they're able to bring people back right out of the nano dust. And I, I think that's really a good analogy as to what we're going to be capable of in the future. And until then tabling the questions to get us the, the, the motivation and the inspiration to, dig into these things uh, 
um, academic hubris has to go. Academic hubris and you've been teaching something, great. Well, it's wrong. You, you, you not only want to accept that you're wrong, you need to move on into what we know. You know, we literally need to pay archaeologists to be wrong. We need to pay them to not find things. And then when they do find things, they have to not be afraid that it's the wrong thing. That literally it's out there, that they find something that they don't want to find, that they have to document or will throw off the narrative that they're being barely funded for. And they hide or displace or misreport or don't a finding because it doesn't fit the narrative. It doesn't fit evolution. It doesn't fit uh, the timelines of where people are supposed to be. So there's a whole lot of boo-hoo-hoo for everyone. Well, <laughs> but it, it, it's true from the academic standpoint of these are the people that are writing the textbooks, everybody. These are the people that write the textbooks throughout the education system. And then there's, there's, you know, uh, $300 textbooks in, in a school district and you need, you know, 10,000 or 5,000 textbooks written by these guys, they're making a lot of money. And so are the publishing companies. And then guess what? When they advance their, their ideas and their research a little bit more, they have to do a revision. They have to, they have to do an edit and change the edition of the book. Guess what happens? All the old books get destroyed. New books are printed and have to be paid for again. So well, if you want to talk about waste. That's why a lot of the companies are starting to go with um, online sources. Yeah. So companies like Amplify for any other science curriculum for, I don't know about high school, but I know for K-8, um, their curriculum is online, so it can be easily adapted and changed as time goes on. I Was the movie that you were talking about, um, What Dreams May Come? No, that was a depressing one. No, this one is um, it's based on an asthma of short story. The, the movie I was thinking of was from 2001. It was AI, Artificial Intelligence. Oh, yeah. Steven Spielberg. It was an adaptation. They, they're saying it's from Super Toys Last All Summer Long was... Um, but it was Spielberg that did it. And uh, yeah, I think it was very much related to a, an, um, an Asimov story, but either way, yeah, there's a robot boy and they, but they basically use nanotechnology to take atoms that are left within the dust of the ruins to recreate when he's found years later, you know, the, I think some of the most telling things about our future archeology is that. And for the most part, Getting back on point, what you were saying is that there's a number of people that they have nothing going on. They don't, they, 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 they want to retire. They want to do their jobs, uh, careers. They, they only have so many things they can worry about or think about. Um, they're not going to try doing Wim Hof. They're not going to try to do a meditation. They're not trying to wake up. I mean, I mean, we, we call it the matrix, you know, they want to stay asleep or whatever, just they're good. They're enjoying life. They, they don't. But, but what I find sad about it in general, not anyone in particular, but there's this, these questions that come up at key moments when you get sick, when you get really injured, when you get hurt and die or, or you just pass on. And then no matter how much you've avoided the questions, people ask, why? Who are we? What are we? Why did this have to happen? 
why, why, you know, this religion over that religion, this system of government over another. And, oh man, the whole idea of the word misinformation, what a crock of crap. I never, (laughs) I never thought that they could repackage fascist, Nazi, actual totalitarian verbiage. And, and it could be that it would be accepted in our Western hemisphere blows my mind. You literally dis, Oh, I could just, mm. that that's maybe a topic for a whole nother show. Yeah. Let's don't let me go down that train. Okay. Let's not go down (laughs) there, but I, I will just say that, you know, they obviously don't want people talking about certain subjects because it scares them. And so they'll label it whatever they need to, to to be able to have some kind of a legal right to say, hey, Wayne and Jared cannot talk about this global network of this engineered soil from 76 plus thousand years ago. And how dare you say that humans were around a million years ago? What, what are you? You can't say that. It doesn't say that in this book. So, no, sorry, guys. So that that's where I get frustrated. And, yeah. and you know, it, here's the thing. If you think we're crazy, if you don't like what we're saying, then feel free to turn it off. Oh, God, they I did. Mean, they're they're Netflix and and, and they're 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 gone. They're gone. <laughs> they're gone. They're watching the next episode or next season of Queen of the South. You know, oh, so, yeah, they're they're out. Yeah. All right. So before we kick you out of here, because we've been at this almost two hours already, and I feel like we've just been all over the place, but no place yet. It's just so much we've talked about. Namaste. Um, (laughs) I was watching Terracor and I watched the first five minutes a few times because there was something there that caught my attention. And I want to pick this apart a little bit because you talk about the polygonal masonry. And as far as I know, we have no idea how this was done. So people, please look, look these things up, watch the, if you haven't already watched his, you know, it's 30 some minutes, 38 minutes, maybe yeah, of a documentary that will blow your mind. You're going to see these, these uh, stones that have been worked. Any idea of how these things were made, let's forget about moving them. But how were they made? You know, Dr. Joseph David Ovivitz, the father of geopolymers, has done research. There's been Russians uh, that have done research. And I say that because there's a separation between the East and the West and sharing knowledge. And there are, there are just as many inquisitive people like you and I, like this exact dialogue is going on in Eastern Bloc. And then very little of it, some of it gets translated uh, back and we hear and we get some of the feedback or there are reports. So the Chilean government, uh, there's actually, I've read the full, um, there's a number of scientific papers. So for everyone out there, part of doing field research is reading other people's actual work, like their actual field research. And Arthur Posenansky uh, or Arturo is the first person to document Tiwanaku. And this man was just an adventure. He didn't have a degree. He went out and just did it. And uh, the degree has nothing to do with it. Again, you know, it's, it, that's a different animal in a different system. But Everybody's a scientist if they want to be. Yeah. If you want to ask real good questions, uh, by the way, 
off air, I, I have a picture for you and Michelle. Michelle, okay. you're still listening. Yes, I uh, am. <laughs> uh, just, I wanted to get her in there quick. So the, uh, so the crap I was staying on topic. I was, what was the question? Where were we? You were talking about geopolymers. Oh, geopolymers. So yeah. yeah, Dr. Joseph David Ovitz, the father of geopolymers, invents them in the early 70s. He's won every award a Frenchman can win for science. And well, literally, if you have concrete at your house, if you have a swimming pool, if you have, if you go on a skyscraper, geopolymers are in your tile. They're you know in your bathroom. They're on your feet. Uh, the mortars and mixes we use to do concrete work. They're just not concrete, just concrete anymore. They have geopolymers. And Dr. Joseph David Ovitz himself uh, had a theory about the Great Pyramid and about some of these large megalithic structures that maybe they weren't dragged, maybe they were poor geopolymers. And then there's some other scientific institutions in Europe, like in the Bay of Cadiz, where they found what appeared to be a Teflon-like, and I wrote about this in It's Not Aliens. Again, probably a lot of information for one book, but that's why we have documentaries and follow-up and all you people listening. Um, the the point was that the, the bay appeared to be made out of an ancient, ancient harbor wall that was made out of a material that when they analyzed it, they took samples and it was like a geopolymer Teflon and barnacles and nothing would grow on it. And to know the natural world or a programmable biotechnical world, would it be easy for that society that's talking through vibrational energy and frequencies and running a, a system that requires a hundred percent brain capacity and consciousness collectively with a with an animal system that, you know, an animal itself was art. Uh, the reality is that this geopolymers, uh, the idea of artificial construction, go all the way to Tiwanaku. Uh, they go to Oliante Tambo, uh, the Great Pyramid, which has been independently verified by Egyptologists and someone from Yale, uh, that ancient advanced concretes uh, are all over the earth. And are they also, again, part of the seismic metastructures are the stone spheres, geopolymers. They like to discount them. So if you're early in your research, and what I mean by that is you're going to hear objections. One of the objections is, oh, they're concretions. So for anyone studying volcanoes, it'd be a good excuse to learn about concretions. Because Apparently for a while, for those of you who don't know, besides lava and magma and general, you know, excretions of, 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 of liquid uh, geodiarrhea of a volcano <laughs> for, a, for a while, if I can make that more graphic for your listening younger audience, volcanoes said, you know, wouldn't it be neat to make snowballs like snow? So just for a while just for one period, just because of the special geological circumstances on earth. Volcanoes created snowballs of gaseous um, concoctions that turned into giant stone spheres as big as 64 tons and as small as golf balls. And then they all got a memo and volcanoes stopped doing that. And there's some problems with that. Giant stone spheres that are found 
at first in Costa Rica, were then found in the Arctic Circle in Russia, China, New Zealand, San Francisco, all over Central and South. They're found everywhere, these stone spheres, and they're of 64 tons to golf balls. And they're not all round. They are various shapes. And there was, which I cite in scientific papers in my book, uh, scientists that have experimented with one by one meter stone spheres in modern times. And if you place them under whole cityscapes at certain depths under the cities, stone spheres act as seismic wave resonators, which means they can mute a frequency that might be harmful, like a volcanic wave or like a, a wave from a, an earthquake that's maybe like a causing. seismic wave. Yeah. Yep. Or it could be amplifying or resonating a complementary wave, maybe ones of communication, multiple waves simultaneously. And the thing about these stone spheres is that depending on where you are in the world, from Eastern Bloc Europe to uh, Mexico and New Zealand, thank God for stories and legends. Because over the years, people have said, well, they're giant Easter eggs and there must be gold and jewelry or, or, or treasure on the inside. So thank God people with no druthers drilled, hammered, banged, and dynamited some of these stone spheres. Because one of the best ways to stop people from researching something is to put on a World Heritage preservation sticker and say it's protected. That's right. And then you have to go through a council that approves nothing ever to say you want to do an experiment. But they'll say, we're sorry, you can't do that. That's destructive. You can only look at it. But now, if if we can get a hold of some of these objects, I think geopolymers are involved. So these are man-made concrete, concrete slurries that they're casting and forming into uh, geopolymers, uh, into shapes, whether it's polygonal walls, whether it's stone spheres, and the kind of geopolymers they're using include silicretes, high crystalline contents, things that you use like oscillate, like in a computer, in a motherboard, in a, in a chip. You know, we use crystals. But these people are doing it on a scale that we are not comprehending for a population that was probably much larger. It's very interesting. And what would make those ideas about the concretions not true would be, well, if you have some type of a lava bomb that's shot out of a volcano, it's going to cool very quickly, but there's going to be trapped gas in it as well inside that lava. It's going to leave pot marks and things. And these things don't look like that. These giant spheres, even the small ones. So that kind of rules it out. And then wherever you find these things down to the smallest ones, then you have to say, well, where is the volcano? And as far as I understand is that these things are found where there is no volcano around and it never was around. Correct. Well, they roll (laughs) (laughs) a thousand miles. (laughs) Well, according to most anthropologists, you know, people back then, they only hunted so often. So since game was plentiful, you just pretty much plucked a rabbit every time you needed an appetizer and you just kept rolling. Right. You had all the time of the world. You know, what would be cool is like hang out on ancient wood pool table Island and hang out with your friends and your kids. Or I know let's just go on a quest for two years to roll rocks back. 
but we'll get heaven points. I mean, right. seriously, this yeah. crap we make up. Uh, anyway. Well, well, <laughs> you're 100% correct. But one of the main reasons why I brought term. this up is that around the that five minute time frame into your your documentary i had to stop it and i i've got some screenshots here that i'm i'm showing you but i'm sure you're familiar with this stuff um but i noticed a couple of things that it, that just didn't look right to me and one is there's this these weird nubs on some of these masonry blocks and then if i show you this one and people you'll see this when you watch uh when you watch the documentary anyways, right above this, and you can see a part of above the nub, a part of this, it looks like this rock has, and I think this is granite. Am I, am I correct? Uh, on that? Some are andesites, diorites, uh, high crystalline quartz, uh, rose. Okay. I mean, they're, so they're not just, there are different kinds of granites there. There it's quite spectacular and specifically Tiwanaku, Pumapunku, uh, like stuff around Cusco, uh, Ollante Tambo, there are a number of areas where there has been some of this other Eastern and scientific research that, including Dr. Joseph David Ovitz working on it himself with his group, that there is signs of, based on experimentation, that there were geopolymers used. And there is this mystery dialogue about melting or softening the stone but the specific shapes, the idea of sedimentary seismic metastructures being under the polygonal walls. Uh, also, I'm not just saying that they built a strong foundation or one that had corresponding uh, just frequency energy uh, abilities directly under the walls. I'm saying that the complexities of the original advanced society that built this complex polygonal joint were likely filtering and laying out the soils uh, like we would lay out roads going to and from any construction they built and the soils themselves corresponded with what they not only wanted to grow on the surface, but underneath, I think they moved and managed the surrounding soils depending on whether or not like you would lay a cable or fiber optics building the building. I think they were using stone spheres and the sedimentary content, the actual um, makeup of space, you know, from not just the foundational elements, but through the ground, through like Nazca lines, through plant and uh, organic networks, they were moving information to and from uh, and around communities, cities, uh, field, remote locations, and they were doing it all through um, a, a network that included um, fungal, bacterial, uh, actual. I when I we focus so much on the on the crystalline and or geopolymer or the idea of an it is an external visible technology but it's like also a solid state flash drive that's not working right now. So did the corresponding crystalline content of this geopolymer that we're looking at in this picture correspond to a specific stone sphere? Did the frequencies and energies that resonated to or from this construction uh, relay through 
out of 20 stone spheres in the area, did it resonate three to make a new signal? Did it use two? Mm-hmm. You know, it was like bells at a choir at a church. Right. You know, we, we have technology here that uh, we're not looking for those answers because for the longest time it was find me a king, find me gold, find me, right. you know. The, the King Tut's tomb, you know, that's that's the fun stuff. So this, sexy and fun. That's yeah. Indiana Jones. <laughs> yeah. Well, the reason I'm asking, I have this picture up besides the uh, amazing joint where these there's three blocks meeting here. And it's it's amazing that yeah. they could get these rocks put together. I guess, you know, we, we can also say not only did the copper chisel uh, build Egypt, it also built South America. One hell of a I'm, hardware store. <laughs> right. I'm looking at the the this piece though that seems to have been missing. Would this be indicative of like a geo a geopolymer structure receiving a ton load of vibrations, maybe from seismic waves, primary waves, uh, secondary waves, something hitting that and going through it, and it would flake off. I've not. I've not seen many rocks like this. One other thing. Well, this piece missing. Yeah. The, so since we're all diving into this for the first time on your show, what I want to throw out to people is that having been a historical remodeler for 20 years mm-hmm. um, and being in a city where there's buildings that are 140, 120, 160. I mean, some of the stuff has, there's not a lot. Of, I mean, there's also shell mound culture mound people in Minnesota. Um, There are like indigenous cultures that date back thousands of years. And I mean, tens of thousands, but um, I would, I would argue that the polygonal erosion, the erosion we're seeing on that polygonal wall is erosion that if we are looking at a polygonal construction, that had a finished surface on it that was as complex as that joinery. But that finished surface was 75,000 years old. And it wasn't 75,000 years old for the volcanic eruption, but it was 100,000 years old. And it was well-maintained. Or if it was done by a super volcanic surviving high society that then built it 60,000 years ago or 65,000 years ago and the remnants of Tiwanaku, Sacsay Waman, Oyate Tambo, the idea of Atlantis, the eye of Africa, the Corinthian columns of that range from Greece to Mongolia for the Tartarian empire are what we really looking at are the remnants of the last um, advanced ancient polygonal uh, advanced ancient millions of years old, Again, standard academia found actual anatomically correct human remains in layers of the earth that they just pretend didn't happen. I mean, and it's all in, and again, it's not Michael Cremo saying it, it's Michael Cremo spending 10 years. And for 35 years, this book, this is, if you're going to have a rack of books in your house, oh yeah, buy my book too when it comes out, please. But yeah, we're going to talk about that here in a minute. Yeah, but Michael Cremo's forbidden archaeology will get, and by the way, Michael Cremo is very funny. 
a lot of people will pick up the book. And if you like, if you like Bigfoot, something never talked about out of almost a thousand pages, he actually does some very good, like any of the legit info on Bigfoot stuff, it's actually in his book, but mostly people will start reading it. And it was so well done. They made him join a bunch of, if you can't beat him, join him. He's a part of archaeological congresses. I mean, Michael Cremo's um, speaks around the world to the Russian Academy of Science. I mean, he's, he's, uh, you know, he spent over 30 years writing a book that he thought, well, it was 10 years to write the book. It was over 35 years. It's been out and he's in his eighties and he's still doing research and he's still writing. And I've been able to interview him four times and speak with him and, and multiple times. And I can tell you that the work is him verifying paleoanthropological finds of millions of years of human history. And it's there and it's in, you know, Hindu writings, but what we have is a society that may from say Atlantean mythologies brought by Solon, the Greek, that maybe we are looking at constructions and buildings that stood after and before Mount Toba have suffered not 6,000, but tens of thousands of years of erosion. And some of it is the science of how the building was constructed. It's been un, I mean, what if without any, human maintenance because we don't understand it those polygonal walls have stood on their own since the younger dryas with no maintenance and because of the foundations and the exceptional building techniques it, that alone is mind-blowing to think that that building is suffering some facial you know like some you know some chipping because oh you know nobody did anything for six thousand years with some plaster but in right. reality, what if what we're looking at is scalar wave weapon damage from 40,000 years ago from one half of the planet not agreeing with what to do with everyone they left on the other half of the planet and the primitive cultures in the middle leaving Eolus and Neolus for the idea of evolutionary biology to say, oh, yeah, everybody was banging rocks 50,000 years ago. Well, nope, doesn't look like we were. Uh, not all of us. But it's it's amazing the stories that we'll tell ourselves. I mean, just thinking about some of those build sites in Peru where they went up a mountain to gather the, the material, went down yeah. a mountain three miles through a valley, then back up a mountain 10, 10 to 12,000 feet in their loincloths because they points. didn't have nothing else to do. Right. And yeah, then they made these beautiful, right? <laughs> they made these beautiful polygonic, you know building blocks somehow we don't that know. was easy to do 20 sides right. 15 sides right and look you i've said this before you don't you don't make blocks and things that size unless you can easily move them there's no point why would you make them smaller then you if, just if roll them was, on logs right or you know you you grease the sled and you know pull them yep. up a mountain you know a few thousand tons let's just Let's just get some yeah. ox and some slaves and we'll, yeah. you know, it's the, the same thing is true in Egypt, you know? Yeah. And uh, well, we've been at this for almost two hours now at this point. And um, there were some things I wanted to talk to you about uh, the cymatics, um, your own <laughs> personal UFO UAP experience, um, your paranormal experiences, if any, uh, my favorite to talk to anybody about in this field is the granite boxes of Saqqara, you know, yeah. any thoughts on those? Um, Plenty hyperbolic chambers to reconstitute catastrophic failure of the human form through the collective consciousness. How's that for an episode? 
Wow. Uh, Jared, I think what he's trying to tell you is uh, get ready to get booked again. For well, and, well, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Because Jared Wayne wants alluded, to taste it all now. Michelle, I know. Now. Jared has alluded to his book. Now, I know the secret behind this book. It's being re-released. So I know that's why he says it's not out yet, but he keeps talking about this book and stuff. So I've I've held off on purchasing anything until yeah, do anything. it's, it's done. Right. Yes. So, but there's so many things I wanted to talk to you about that, that triggered memories in my head. Um, one thing for instance, and I don't know if this will mean anything to you or not, but you talked about the, the, the sedimentary DNA analysis at Gobekli Tepe. Yeah. And you can't find the, the information anymore. So, you, you know, everybody should screenshot something if you see it on the internet, because the next thing you know, it might be gone. Yeah. But you said something about that material and I'm just going to put this in your ear and, and let you run with it till the next time we can talk. You said that the sedimentary material there dated back to about 30,000 years ago. It was like the, the numbers they gave were the low end was 28, but they were saying 32 to 36,000 years plus. Okay. Right. So when you said 36, you triggered some DNA memory in my head. Yep. Zet Tepe. Yep. Does that ring any bells? Well, I, I, in my book, I go over Neroli. I go over the six other sites um, because it wasn't just Gobekli. It keeps getting all the news yet. There's six other sites and many of them are older. And then it still blows my mind. You dig up 5% of a site and you go, well, we got it all figured out. Right. Like, no shit. Really? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Language. <laughs> but but anyways, when you said that, I thought of Zet Tepe or what they called the first time. And it's the it's the story of the first humans, you know, coming to Egypt and how they were ruled in the followers of Osiris. You know, it's this long story. I'm like, holy crap. You know, right. there maybe there's some kind I mean, Turkey's literally not that far from Egypt. I mean, you know, they well, the scary part is to think if there was advanced humans and they didn't get along and think of it as a cruise ship with some of them being like total internet influencers with no depth, value, or moral center. Not that that's every influencer, but, <laughs> but all right, your average movie executive and or, um, you know, institutionalized, uh, you know, corporate religion, uh, you have a variety of people that have different motivations, And maybe you're just like tired of it and you know what the system was before. It's never going back. How hard would it be to set yourself up as a God or to use what's left of your ancient high technology to create a giant statue that every primitive person could not comprehend even how to begin to build something that big, but for indefinitely, or as a Sumerian legends reference maybe there was eight kings that lived 30 or ruled 32,000 years apiece or maybe it was the same guy but maybe that guy didn't get along with his buddies who were in the hindu vedas and maybe eventually when we see ufos fighting over nuremberg in the 1500s and in switzerland in the 1600s maybe it is still an international group of not quite happy post Mount Toba, post nuclear catastrophic scalar weapons, na- biotech, nano uh, influenced global society that has completely fallen into the druthers. And we're just a bunch of rock banging monkeys in the middle that got caught up dynastically either coming in and adapting these sites. And more importantly, than what's left of these people now. And 
more importantly, we have people who are part of organizations now that think, like you said, that it's better if we stay asleep or we have amnesia. And some of these people have been a part of power systems that are recent and they're very primitive and they're using the same, mind you, they are not, I don't think they're secretly more conscious. I think they're they're more fulfilled in the sense that they have material wants and desires. But the biggest thing that we're in danger of is people who have been secretly managing control mechanisms within the world where they think, oh, the system's good enough. It works out. Yeah, you're 10 to 15% conscious like the rest of us. And there is clearly something influencing you that I don't think you're actually aware of. Or even if you're doing the deal with the devil, I think that in the proverbial sense, the reality is that we are going to end up technologically um, back on the precipice. And I don't mean nuclear. I mean something much more advanced and much more smaller and much more deadly on some nano level. If we do not understand our past, I can't fathom how epic the fail will be as if we don't start. I, I, I've always believed our history is a search and rescue, not a search and recovery. That's there's there's your finish for now. Well, right. Wow. Ending on that note. Well, what what if the bad guys won? Oh, I think they've won and lost over and over. Maybe that's the problem. That's part of the, that's part of the, just to leave everyone with more nightmares right. and anxieties. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't even think it's the same bad guy. I mean, I, they're clearly not getting along. I mean, if they're willing to nuke each other in the open, if Solon, remember Solon comes back with the story and not only to, Plato gets a hold of the Atlantean story, but Solon also came back with the Egyptian priest saying, well, we have a King's list and we go back 36,000 years. And so if the Egyptians are going back 36,000 years in their King's list, well, where were they before? And not only that, we can't date rock. So these silicrete, as it's been described recently, because they found a 1950s core sample of, of Stonehenge. If you have, pure silicrete and it's essentially as they described it geoly indestructible how old is the columns of stonehenge if they were part of superstructures of of these standing stones across karnak uh, dolmens around the world in montana to europe are we really looking at the most oldest remnants of the oldest geopolymers and or superstructures of ancient high-tech cities and is the rest of it in sedimentary dust not only under our feet but in the oceans where there's cities galore and things that don't correspond to dynastic peoples like the city of alexandria and oh yeah you know this used to be above water no no no, no. i'm not talking the last six thousand years we're talking tens of thousands of years of human history uh doggerland you know that yeah. that all of that land that's continental shelf now. Don't don't get me started on that because that that is a rich area. You know there are things to find there other than oil and natural gas and sunken Spanish galleons and stuff. But you know, again, Arr. we don't want it to be fringe. You know, too fringe. Damn it! This goes back to my my first original thought when I started this. This episode with you is I want all of you guys in one room as a giant think tank. And I, Michelle I just, booking. Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is when he tells me to, you know, make sure that you go to work and check your calendar on your desk and see what days you have available. Right. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, 
on that note, let's let's go ahead and wrap this up and tell people where they can find your book or what's going on with your book. I kind of hinted to it already a little bit. And um, anything more about you and your pursuits where they can find information? Well, right now, notaliens.com. You can join the member area there. It's really cheap, but it really helps with the uh, expedition that's been on the books and planning for a while that will help with the documentary Terracor, which you can see on my YouTube channel, also called Not Aliens. And notaliens.com, again, it'd be great if you guys want to join. And then at the same time, I co-host a few different shows. I am trying to get a webmaster to start updating site uh, with the wrap up of my, the revision of the new book that's coming new cover slight, slight twist on the title is still say it's not aliens, but it will be in full color. There will be a digital version and all that's coming in the next couple months uh, max. And I mean, we're really at the end. I mean, we've added 88 pages and it's been a tremendous work and it'll be released here and in Europe. It'll likely be available on Amazon um also but of course i'm going to give you a heads up and ask you to buy it from my site eventually because obviously um i'm really serious about i'm just going to coin this now i really want to mr beast the research and i really want every dollar that comes in to go into the field and i really want to bring everyone with i want the equipment i think there's a whole different level of experience if we can if you can't come on an expedition I want to be able to give members live access to field research and what we're doing. And I really want us to be able to stay live along with doing more prepared documentaries like TerraCore. So there's, there's, there's all I have for you for now. Awesome. All right. Well, everybody, it's been an incredible episode. Obviously we're going to have to have Jared back. There's, there's no questions about it. This is one of my favorite subjects But with that being said, all right, everybody, thank you for listening to the interview tonight, and we will be talking to you soon. See, everyone, I told you, if you like Randall Carlson, if you like Graham Hancock, Jared is awesome, and he even goes a little bit deeper with this geoengineered soil called Terra Preta. It's awesome and i think he's really on to something we were so into that interview and so tired the next day yeah but it was well worth it absolutely so and like he said he's working on his book and we are recording this on the 16th of may 2022 he said he's got a couple months before his re-release is out there so kind of hold off a little bit Keep your eyes open. And then when the new release is out, make sure you go to his website and pick it up. That helps fund his research and getting out there and bringing us more great information. And we still have so many more questions to ask him. So again, we talked for two hours and 10 minutes and only about a quarter of my notes and still talked about other stuff afterwards. Oh my goodness. That was just an awesome interview. One of my favorites. So before we head out of here, hey everybody, do not forget that we got a YouTube channel. Search us out over there on YouTube at Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters Podcast. You can just type it in as all one word. You will find us. Hit that subscribe button and the little bell so you can get notifications when we upload something new. 
And if you have a story you would like to tell, we would like to talk to you. You can reach out to us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. Send us a brief summary of your experience and we'll contact you to discuss things further and try to get you or your story on the podcast. And if you would like to help support the podcast by wearing some of our latest swag, just head on over to our online store at miufopodcaststore.online. Yeah, we've got some summer apparel over there. Yes, we got new tank tops. We got new artwork for season two. Definitely check it out. Also, don't forget to check out our Patreon page if you would like to support the podcast there. It is patreon.com forward slash M-I-U-F-O-S-P-E-P, where you can sign up. We can't wait to give you a shout out for all of your support. And as always, you can find all of the links to everything talked about in the show in our show notes. All right, Michelle, with that, I think we're going to wrap this one up. It's time for me to go check some Perseus and Medusa papers. Oh, cool stuff. All right, everyone. Have a great night. Have a great night, everyone. And remember, keep your eyes to the sky. You have been listening to the Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters podcast. You can reach us at mi.ufo.podcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at mi underscore UFO and join our Facebook group by searching for Michigan UFO Sightings and Paranormal Encounters. So until next time.